Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you doing? If I may use a phrase from you. Yep. Jagged little pill. Is <laughs> a jagged little pill. I um, am mentally everywhere and nowhere all at the ooh, same yeah. time. Uh, I haven't been sleeping great, and I'm just, like, mentally at this point where this afternoon I was almost vibrating, and I said something to my husband, and he was like, oh, are you ready to record tonight? And I just I just went, yeah, and I, like, buzzed through a sentence in, like, 30 seconds, and I just, like, rattled off words, and I went, look, I'm feeling, like, super caffeinated. He's like, how much have you had today? I'm like, just water. Like... <laughs> That's always troubling. Uh, nature's uh, caffeine. Adrenaline. Yeah, well, nature's caffeine. Yeah. To which he responded, does that mean you need caffeine? I'm like, that's a great idea. <laughs> probably not. So now I'm caffeinated. I, I'm just, my brain is everywhere. And I think I'm coming down from the research phase of this particular episode. Because I, I've been in a state of rage. <laughs> mm-hmm. For so much of it that there's just it's it's hard to just turn a switch and go back to not being raged, but but I was actually ready early this time, so that's that's nice. I then spent a solid hour going, well, well then what am I forgetting? I can't possibly be ready early. I'm forgetting something. I wasn't. Never doubt yourself. I wasn't Don't forgetting anything. Do it. Well then I went Don't oh. do it. Okay, I'll start something else. And I just like went and started something else. And just I feel like I'm losing it. 
Yeah. Pretty hard. Pretty hard. I, I just yeah. want you to know that what I have just written down was <laughs> everywhere down in rage. And why did I write those down? Because as I've talked about on this show before, every word that is spoken in front of me triggers a song in my head. Yeah. So you said I'm everywhere but nowhere. And I went, because you're everywhere to me. And then of you course. said down. And I thought, down, down, down. Pick me up, I've fallen. Blink-182. And then rage. And I was like, rally around the family. Like So like that's... <laughs> That's, again, uh, what my cross is to bear. So yeah. I feel you. I feel your energy. I'm also a dragon little girl. It's great. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Look, I uh, I can't wait. I mean, this, I knew coming into this, something's going to feel right because we not knowingly matched with our shirts. We did. Um, we used to, when we very first started, we always yeah. chose ahead of time. And then because I created just so many peaches and pieces of merch, um, <laughs> we just both chose whatever. But tonight, yeah. it, again, there's already an energy, a magic in the air because we're both eating our Eat the Patriarchy with a Side of Fries shirts, which are available at truecrewmerch.com. Nice. Um, because this episode is dropping on International Women's Day. It is. Right? Isn't that? Yeah. Well, International Women's Day. I love that. I'm like, did I get the name of it right? <laughs> yes, Lauren, you did. According to the internet, that is when this is uh, going to release to the world. And what I love is I've also decided, because it's International Women's Day, that I, I decided to go makeup-free. Um, and also, I've got a real flush going because my dinner has just been a couple handfuls of sweet, chili heat Doritos. <laughs> So I'm I'm a I'm in a bit of a sweat. I feel flushed, but the bigger point is I feel alive. And what better way to celebrate International Women's Day but uh, together? I, now, if Doritos isn't listening to this and going a makeup line, <laughs> okay, and it's literally just a type of chip that will turn your face a certain color. I mean, you want yeah. a bit of. You want to put blush on? Nah. Sweet chili heat, man. Eat a handful of sweet chili heats. Exactly. That's amazing. I, I I love that it was just a, I'm specifically, you know, not going to make up for this. And I'm like, yeah, I just don't. <laughs> anyway, I barely get, I barely have time to get ready for a regular record. Yeah. I don't have time to, to gussy this. I. Listen. We're, you don't need to. There's no need. We're lucky that I'm here. <laughs> yes, we are. Yeah, you I'm know all, what? I'm yeah, all over we the are. Place. We are lucky. <laughs> all the rest of us are lucky. So that's nice. Um, now, listen, International Women's Day, again, yeah. you know, eat the patriarchy, all these things going on. Did you have any thoughts, feelings, things you wanted to share? I have notes. <laughs> Why did I know that was true? Come on yeah. now. Yeah. Look, I we don't normally like do a research right off the top. No. But earlier, when I was done early. Yes. Uh, and I just sat there and went, what do I do? I'm early. And then I was like, International Women's Day. And then I was, I can't stop myself. So, International Women's Day is a global event meant to recognize and celebrate the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women and girls. And since this episode is dropping on that actual day, I thought I would mention a few incredible women from history. It sounds boring. I promise it's not going to be. And it goes without saying, this is just a very, very small sampling 
of the incredible women who I could have mentioned. It would have been impossible to mention all of them. So yes, I know some many people are going to be missing from this list, including my co-host Lauren, who is the perfect example of how amazing a woman can be. Bless you. So, Frances Perkins, ah, born April 10th, 1880, was an American worker rights advocate who served as the U.S. Secretary of Labor from 1933 to 1945. To this day, she is the longest to serve in that position, and she was the first woman to serve any presidential U.S. cabinet. Oh, I should have referenced and checked into some of these pronunciations. <laughs> ah, nah, that's good. Gertrude uh, Ederl, Ederl? Uh, okay. born October 23rd, 1905, an American competitive swimmer, an Olympic champion, and a five-time world record holder. At the age of 20, Gertrude became the first woman to swim across the English Channel, which she did two hours faster than any of the men before her. Yes, love it. Rosalind Franklin, born July 25th, 1920, was an English chemist who was responsible for the X-ray diffraction that led to the discovery of the double helix and the understanding of molecular structures in DNA. Her wow. research was used without her permission, and she was never given credit in her lifetime. Uh. Eloise P. Coble was born November 5th, 1945. She fought for Native Americans to have control over their own financial future, so she founded the first Native American-owned bank. She also initiated the largest class action lawsuit against the United States government in history, demanding accountability from the government for abuse on Native American property and for the mismanagement of the Indian trust funds. After 13 years of court battles, in December of 2009, Eloise and her lawyers agreed to a $3.4 billion settlement. Wow! I know, right? Uh, May Young, born March 12, 1923, was an American professional wrestler who performed throughout the 1940s through to the 1980s. And in 1951, she became the first Florida women's champion in the National Wrestling Alliance. At the age of 76, May revitalized her career by joining the World Wrestling Federation in 1999. She officially retired in November 2010 at the age of 87. Wow. Yeah. And just a few quick women's firsts. Before I get to my final badass lady, which is uh, one of my favorites, and I think everyone will know why. Uh, so 1793, Hannah Slater receives the first U.S. patent granted to a woman. It was specifically for a type of cotton thread. Uh, in 1805, Sophie Blanchard was the first woman to pilot a hot air balloon. 1818, Molly Williams was the first female firefighter in the United States. 1849, Elizabeth Blackwell became the first female doctor in the United States. Wow. 1903, and good God, watch out for the impressive, Marie Curie was the first woman to win a Nobel Prize in physics. She was then the first women, woman to win for chemistry in 1911, and the first person and only woman to date who has ever won two Nobel Prizes. Only woman to date. I know. 
Wow. Uh, in 1916, uh, Jeanette Rankin is elected to the House of Representatives for Montana and is the first female member of Congress. 1949, Arlene Francis was the first woman to host a TV game show. She hosted Blind Date. Huh. Uh, 1949, Sarah Christian was the first woman to race in NASCAR. 1958, Ella Fitzgerald was the first woman to win multiple Grammys. 1960, Joanne Woodward was the first person to receive a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Wow. Paul Newman was fortunate enough to be married to her for 50 years. Beautiful. In 1963, Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman in space. 1972, Catherine Graham became the first female CEO of a Fortune 500 company, Washington Post, to be specific. Huh. Uh, 1984, Barbara Streisand was the first woman to win a Golden Globe for Best Director for Yentl. 1987, Aretha Franklin was the first woman inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. 2013, Cindy Lauper was the first woman to win a Tony Award for Best Original Score. 2014, and my God, again, impressive, Audra McDonald became the first woman to ever win six Tony Awards and the first woman to win a Tony Award in all four acting categories. Wow, good for yeah. her. Uh, in 2016, Taylor Swift became the first woman to win Album of the Year twice. In 2021, Kamala Harris was the first woman to serve as vice president in the United States and is the highest-ranking female politician in U.S. history. And now this one is my uh, last one that I have and my favorite story of all time. I heard it within the last year and I tell everyone that I can about it because it. if you don't know about it, it really, it really ends on a note you never see coming. Uh, Judith Love Cohen, born August 16th, 1933, was an American aerospace engineer who helped create the abort guidance system that rescued the Apollo 13 astronauts. While working on the problem, she took a printout of it to the hospital to work on while she was in labor. She called her boss to say, oh yeah, I've solved it. And then she gave birth to Jack Black. Ah! <laughs> That's incredible. It's an ending that you don't see coming. That's like, I heard it and went, oh, that can't be real. And I looked it up and it is. His mother is so impressive, which then makes me go, well, that makes sense. It does. There's just like an inner light that she passed on. And because uh, I just, if you don't know it, it's just, you never see it coming. Like you'll never think, oh, that's the ending. The idea of her doing that in labor, come on. Incredible. Women be impressive is all I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, that reminds me, have you seen the story... Uh, that's been going around on the internet that someone accidentally deleted Toy Story 2. They oh, had, yeah. They had finished the movie. It had not come out. <laughs> right. And and someone deleted it. And there oh, was a right. woman, and I'm so sorry, I, I don't remember her name off the top of my head. I just remember the story. But she was on maternity leave, and she had saved a copy just in case and was like, I've got it. 
<laughs> and that that woman now is a producer on, um, oh gosh, there's a huge movie that's coming out. I can't remember. I'm I'm really screwing like, this story like up. Disney one. Yeah, uh, yeah. Seeing going red, seeing red, something like that. The red one. I can't remember. I'll look it up on the break and we'll I'll I'll, I'll let you know. But anyway, the whole point is is that it was just like her forethought of maybe I should keep a copy just in case when I go up for when I go on maternity leave. I was just like, that's a mother. That's a mother right there who was yeah. like, I'm going to think a step ahead. I just thought that, mm-hmm. that was so charming. Mm-hmm. Um, God, I bet they keep extra copies since <laughs> since that incident. Back up the backup, Pixar. Yeah. Back up the backup. Wow. And then I just Good wanted to her. say, first of all, thank you for this list. This is such a wonderful, um, all across the board, all different kinds of of careers and achievements what a wonderful uh sampling of some of the amazing women and the only thing i wanted to mention you mentioned that the first female game show host was hosting blind date yeah not i'm I'm not trying to make this about me but in the spirit of international women's day yeah it is amazing to listen to all of the uh, these stories about all of these amazing accomplishments but i think it's also important to remember how far we still have yet to go uh the example being that i was uh involved in a pitch uh for a uh uh it was not even really a game show it was like a food show Um, oh this was probably less than 10 years ago and uh, we did a whole thing. We did a whole like presentation. And the the feedback that we got back was audiences prefer male hosts. Oh, that was within the last decade. So, uh, dear listeners, I, I share that only because I think it's important <laughs> to remember that we have come so far, uh, but we still have so far to go. So um, far. And so uh, far. and what how how exciting, how exciting to uh, all come together. Um, for the for the greater good, for the greater good of, of all. I mean, again, listen, these stories remind that uh, what was your quote? Women be impressive. I agree. <laughs> that does sound like what I've said, but I've already forgotten. So. No, I think that is. I think that is what you said. I think that is what you said. Um, and it was great. Probably. Yeah, it made sense to me. But oh, agreed, absolutely agreed that it's like, oh, we've come so far, and then you're like. But <laughs> there's, it, it, we still have considerable ways to go. Yeah. Which is disappointing, but exciting to to think that if we've come this far, oh, heaven help us. <laughs> it's just. Uh, yes. Let's keep exactly. going. Exactly. Exactly. Let's keep going. The sky's the limit. Yes. The sky's the limit. Um, but yeah, what a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful education and a wonderful celebration. I well, looked I, up I the answer because it was to, <laughs> for the people to be forced to listen to my voice extra. Of course. It's, and it's I look appreciate it. that. The yeah. woman's name is Galen Sussman. She is hey. the person who say she is the only reason why we viewed Toy Story 2. And she is now, uh, one of the producers on Lightyear. Which, of course, is the new oh, story spinoff film yeah. starring the voice of none other than Captain America himself, Chris Evans. So there you go. It. I just I had to get that information in the moment because right. it was it was killing me softly. Uh, I was shout thinking, out to that wonderful woman. Of course, I was thinking uh, the Pixar because I think the Pixar is the red one about the red the the girl that turns into a red panda or something. That's coming out soon, I think. Yes. But uh, what I love about the idea of Lightyear, God, do I want to see it. 
Um, but I know <laughs> that you and I seeing it, it would be like one seeing it for Chris Evans, one seeing it for her lifelong crush on Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> I'm just also, vocal about it now. Of course. I think that um I think that the, the dear people need to know very quickly that yeah. uh Christy has a crush on Buzz Lightyear, the, the, the character. And I uh I think it was it the first time we, we went to Disneyland, there was a, a Buzz Lightyear walking around. I think it may have so. been the first I think it was the first time. And it was for anyway, one of the times we went, and it was, I'll just say it, transformative for you. <laughs> It was the moment I realized I had a crush on Because he was human-sized, right? So it was not like he was a toy size. It was like, no, no, he was a man. He was a full Buzz Lightyear man. He was a man. <laughs> She's back! People, ladies, gentlemen, dear people, Blanche is back! Oh, God, I hope so. Oh, I hope so. That would be nice. That it would be feel, nice I feel to it. know. That would be nice to know that... International Women's Day and Buzz Lightyear somehow combined to pull it out of. I just look. Have you like seen the trailer? He's handsome. I never he's denied a, it. He's, a good <laughs> he's animated. Like, <laughs> listen, it's bigger oh, than you. It's, it's just bigger than you. Bigger than me. But if I'm, there was I'm so ever impressed that he's in like a space ranger. <laughs> not a real occupation but it could be but it could be and it's hella impressive you're right yeah <laughs> oh my god you're right it's not none of it's real <laughs> but it's real for blanche and you that's know the what thing that's it the is most exciting and, and it important it's right. important you're right and you oh god what? i've missed you i've missed her i really have it's nice to have I, her back i hope that this is it i hope that this is her this is we're back I love that that's how it came about. Well, again, I know what you're thinking. You watch Toy Story 1 or 2 or 3 or 4, I think there is, and it's you're just like, I don't get it. And it's like, he's so charming in person, he doesn't talk. <laughs> There's something so charming and gentlemanly about him, and that... Oh, that trailer for Lightyear. <laughs> what does that even mean? Does that does feel that like mean? it's too too brandy, but it, I don't think that you're drinking brandy, which I'll get to in a second. But that this is it, well, though. I knew it was going to happen. Full sweet chilly heat. I've told you. I told you that. We, I told you never lose hope. Mm. She's coming back, and she's here. Uh, which again seamlessly transitions into what you drinking over there. Well. I couldn't get this boozy because <laughs> this is this is a, a level of jagged little pill. Yeah, uh, that I couldn't. I didn't want to mess with that. Uh, so I'm doing a water. Stay hydrated. Thank and, you. And uh, just the the most amount of caffeine that I could get into a Slurpee. Of course, was was my plan. Well, what I would like you to know is that over here, it's a whole journey. I've got my water. I've yeah. got a fountain diet coke from Carl's Jr. I wow. I didn't eat, I, I didn't eat there. I just went to get the the diet didn't coke. See that coming? No one did. And then a Palm Bay Rainbow Twist. Of course. And this to me also feels like it's part of the the energy shift. You yeah. know what I mean? Like maybe now that I've gone full Blanche, 
it's blanched you black into blanching. What? Wow. <laughs> my, well, my my hope, I don't want you to lose it entirely. It's not gone. See, I think that maybe you Do I need to, to test you again? <laughs> do it. And then we'll get into the episode. Give us one quick. Oh, oh, we'll do one test, test each and then we'll get into the episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm clearing my mind. Trying to think of something. Again, people, remember, this is not real. I'm coming up with something. Yeah, yeah. To Don't see if fact. I can. Don't fact check her. Yeah. If I can tempt her. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard that you were, uh, receiving an Amazon package tomorrow and I read the driver's name and it says Chris Evans. <laughs> it's that there was a heat in my heart. <laughs> oh my, look at, look, my whole face is gone. I've gone completely I, red. So the, tra- the transformation continues. Oh, this, this gives me joy. I need I need Blanche to stick around, you know. I, yes, and listen, my test for you. Yeah. And now yeah. this is real. This is oh. real. Oh, yeah. The Foo Fighters are coming to Saskatchewan in the fall. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. And maybe there's an opportunity for some sort of meet and greet with Dave Grohl. I would shit my pants. There she is. There she is. Oh, God, it's good. I would fully, 100% just evacuate bowels. Like, I (laughs) have no words for it. Buzz Lightyear is on the list with Dave Grohl. Like, (laughs) silent Buzz Lightyear. (laughs) (laughs) He's so nice. He doesn't talk. Uh, gosh on that note let's get into it we're of course talking about every woman whitney houston on this episode of the show on international women's day this of course is our february patrons poll pick uh every month on patreon.com slash true crime and cocktails we have a poll where you can vote for one of the episodes we cover on this feed of the show so check that out for more info if you're interested um Now, listen, I think everyone listening probably knows who Whitney Houston is, but if you don't, never fear, I'm going to tell you right now. Whitney Houston was a multi-award winning powerhouse singer who came out strong in the 80s with back-to-back hit albums. Best known for the hit I Will Always Love You from the Bodyguard soundtrack, Whitney seemed to have it all. But after her shocking death in February 2012, things started to surface about her decades of substance abuse, and since her death, multiple family members have suffered the same fate. So what happened to Whitney Houston? How did she go from being one of the top recording artists of the 90s to being found unconscious in a hotel room? What role, if any, did Whitney's ex-husband Bobby Brown play in all of this? And what other family members are culpable in Whitney's death? Christy Oxborough investigates. You're damn right she does. And um, she rages. She rages a lot. Wasn't one of her songs, Didn't We Almost Have It All? Wasn't that her? If, absolutely. And, and was that a nod? I wasn't going to okay, try good. to, if you of think course. I wasn't going to try and make that mostly lyrics. <laughs> I shouldn't have even asked. I should, I knew. In my <laughs> yeah. heart, I knew. Yeah. I, Shame I, on I mean, me. I tried, but. Uh, oh, it was good. It was I was well also done. trying to be respectful and I don't know. Uh, before I go in, I have to start. And it seems silly now to even bring it up. 
I have to correct one of my errors from last oh. week. Uh, I referenced uh, when I was feeling um, a, a Blanche drought. I referenced The Simpsons and an old man at a retirement home punching his crotch to feel something. <laughs> Turns out that was actually Family Guy. <laughs> I have, of course, posted that picture uh, on our social media <laughs> randomly in the case file. So for whoever goes through the entire yep. case file, yep. that's a fun treat for you to find. Uh and I know it's silly and people are going to be like, what? But I guarantee tomorrow when that episode airs, <laughs> people are going to be like, that wasn't The Simpsons. I know. Uh, that was my error. I apologize for the error. Uh, I should have known that Simpsons would not go as far as old man crotch punching. That is absolutely something that Seth MacFarlane would do. <laughs> of course. So, but of course. I've still seen it. And... I'm probably not going to delete the GIF that's on my phone because it makes me laugh every Don't do time. It. Don't and it shows it. me it shows me uh, the depths to which I had fallen. So that's where <laughs> that's where we're at again, jagged little pill. Yep. So before we get to official business, I want to add the disclaimer: this episode will contain a lot of discussions on substances and substance abuse, as well as mentions of domestic violence and pregnancy loss. Trigger warning for those who need it. Sissy Drinker is a soul and gospel singer who, after a successful career singing backup for artists such as Elvis Presley and Aretha Franklin, had a solo career that led to two Grammy Awards for Best Traditional Gospel Album in 1997 and 1999. Sissy was also a founding member of the R&B group Sweet Inspirations, who performed from 1959 to 1979, before reuniting in 1994. Fun fact about Sissy, she is the aunt of Dionne Warwick and a cousin of opera singer Leontine Price. And at first, I could not figure out why Leontine's name was so familiar to me. Like, I had just read that name and I looked and I had previously clicked on her before. So I'm like, this is weird. Then I realized it's because she was a patient of Dr. Feelgood, Max Jacobson. Call back to last week. Call back to last week. For more information on that, check out episode 73, Dr. Feelgood. I think so. Yeah. Again, the numbers. Who knows? It's there. Uh, Sissy married Freddie Garland in 1955 and they had a son named Gary who went on uh, to play in the NBA for the Denver Nuggets ah. until he was released in 1980 for failing a drug test. Oh, boy. With singing in his blood, Gary went on to perform as a background singer in nine of Whitney's 11 worldwide tours. We'll oh, get wow. to Whitney in a moment. In 1957, Sissy met John Russell Houston Jr., a former Army veteran who served during World War II. Despite John being legally married to someone else, Sissy and John had a son, Michael, in August 1961, and a daughter, Whitney, two years later. When John's divorce was finalized in April 1964, John and Sissy got married. And since John struggled to find steady work, shortly after the birth of their daughter, Sissy returned to the studio doing background vocals while John stayed home with the kids. Which leads us to the woman of the hour. 
Whitney Elizabeth Houston was born August 9, 1963, in Newark, New Jersey. After the riots in 1967, the Houston family moved to East Orange, New Jersey. Historical side note! The riots went from July 12th to 17th and started because two white cops beat a black cab driver over a minor traffic offense. The driver, John William Smith, signaled and passed the double-parked police car, who in turn pursued him, pulled him over, and attacked him. Smith was taken to the police station where he was somehow charged with assaulting the officers? The officers, whose names I know but refuse to say because fuck (laughs) them! That's the energy I'm bringing tonight. Yep. Uh, The officers stated they learned that Smith's license had been revoked as he had been in eight accidents the week prior, so they just assumed he was really dangerous. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Over the course of the uprising, 26 people died, including one police officer, one firefighter, and 24 citizens. 700 were injured, and 1,400 were arrested. Wow. The National Guard was called in to restore order, but they ended up causing more problems than they helped. Several people were killed by their stray bullets, such as Rebecca Brown, 10-year-old Teddy Moss, and 41-year-old Eloise Spellman, who was shot in the neck After peeking out her window, she left behind 11 children. Oh, God. One man was shot in the back as he looted a six-pack of beer. Again, shot in the back over a case of beer. And 19-year-old James Rutledge Jr. was shot 40 times, including six times to the head. Do I have a lot of feelings about police brutality? You bet I do. Do I have time to get into them today? I do not. Uh, After the riots, property damage was estimated to be $115 million. Mm. These riots were one of 158 riots that erupted across the country. The bloodiest of which occurred in Detroit, where there were 43 dead, 7,200 arrested, and more than 2,500 buildings looted. Property damage in Detroit was estimated to be $322 million. Wow. But back to our regularly scheduled program. Whitney's father gave her the nickname Nippy after a comic strip character that was always getting into trouble. Whitney was very close with her father, but it was Whitney's mother who favored her over the other kids. Sissy said, quote, I love my sons, but Nippy was the youngest and a girl, and she has my heart. Whitney was horribly bullied as a child. Kids would take her glasses and bend them. Some even stole some of her jewelry. And it was a regular occurrence for girls in groups to follow her home from school with the intention of attacking her. And maybe that was part of the reason her parents transferred Whitney to Mount St. Dominic's Catholic School during middle school. As a child, Whitney sang at church, and at the age of 12, Whitney told her mother she wanted to become a singer. Sissy agreed to help coach Whitney, and when Whitney was about 14 years old, Sissy started taking Whitney to nightclub gigs with her, which led to Whitney doing background vocals for various artists, including Shaka Khan! Amazing. I don't know what's happening. Uh, oh, jeez. Uh, I was going to say her 1979 album, Naughty, but... 
I, I got naughty, all right. Uh, <laughs> around this time, a record scout from Arista Records came around hoping to sign Whitney, but Sissy said no, Whitney was too young. In 1979, Sissy performed at a benefit for the United Negro College Fund at Carnegie Hall. As was usual at the time, Whitney was one of Sissy's background singers. At one point in the performance, Sissy had Whitney come out and do a solo. Whitney sang Tomorrow from the musical Annie. Not only did she get a standing ovation, but the press photographers couldn't get enough of her. The next day, one of those photographers approached Whitney and asked her if she would like to model for a new agency that was starting up. So Whitney signed on with the agency Click and modeled throughout high school, eventually switching to Wilhelmina Agency. As a teen model, Whitney appeared in magazines like Essence, Cosmo, Harper's Bazaar, Vogue, and Seventeen. Sissy always accompanied Whitney to photo shoots. In the summer of 1980, Whitney's parents wanted her to get a job outside of modeling, so she became a counselor for the East Orange Community Development Center, which was near her house. The counselors would take kids of various age groups around to different parks in the community to participate in pre-planned activities. I think it was basically like a playground program for those who are familiar with the concept. Fun fact about me, attending a playground program in my youth was the first time I ever played the game Telephone. And when the girl beside me learned what the beginning phrase was versus what I told her, she called me an idiot. And I never returned. Joke's on her because people often tune in to this show in the hopes that I'm being an idiot. They also uh, made us do the giant rainbow parachute thing where you're holding onto the end and you run in the middle and you have to quickly sit and put it under your butt and make this like big rainbow dome. Uh, yeah, that was the summer I learned I was claustrophobic. <laughs> so, 16-year-old Whitney gets a job as a counselor at this community center, and there she befriends another counselor, 19-year-old Robin Crawford. Whitney and Robert Robin started hanging out after work and soon became best friends. Robin said that Whitney was sweet, graceful, confident, and yet somehow incredibly insecure. Whitney adored Robin, but Whitney's mother, Sissy, had other feelings. Sissy said, quote, I had a bad feeling about that child from the first time I saw her. There was something about the way she carried herself, a kind of arrogance that I didn't like. Though she was a pretty girl, in my opinion, Robin wasn't as bright as Nippy. Interesting. Yeah, her book was a tough read, but <laughs> we'll, we'll see if I get into that depending on my mood. Yeah. Uh, Regardless as to how Sissy felt, Whitney continued her close friendship with Robin, who would often come to New Hope Baptist Church to listen to Whitney sing in the choir. Fun fact, according to Robin, another soon-to-be R&B diva was performing with the choir at Emmanuel Missionary Baptist Church less than five miles or eight kilometers away. That singer was none other, none other than Faith Evans. Hey! Yeah! Uh, in 1981, the same year that Whitney graduated from high school, Whitney appeared on the cover of Seventeen magazine. Friends said that Whitney was so down to earth that she never even mentioned it to them, and they only found out about it when they happened upon the magazine at a grocery store. Sissy and John decided it was time to take Whitney's singing career seriously, as Sissy had been determined for Whitney to graduate from high school before starting any music career. So they took a recommendation from Dionne Warwick and hired a management agency called Terra Productions to help get her career started off on the right foot. 
when you, Whitney continued to sing backup for her mother at gigs throughout Manhattan. In June 1982, Whitney decided to move out of her mother's house and got an apartment in Woodbridge, New Jersey, with Robin as her roommate. Also in 1982, Whitney had her first recording as the lead vocals in the song Memories, which was on Material's album One Down. This led to Whitney being hired to do some advertising jingles for TV and radio, and in 1983, she even performed and starred in a commercial for Canada Dry Ginger Ale. Hey! Terra Productions then featured Whitney in a series of showcase events that were only open to record company bigwigs. The scout for Arista Records, who had been trying to sign Whitney since she was 14, convinced his boss, Clive Davis, to go to one of the events just to see Whitney sing. After her performance, Clive immediately offered Whitney a contract, and on June 23, 1983, Clive took Whitney on the Merv Griffin Show, her first national television appearance. Clyde Davis, side note, I have to admit, this dude's track record is amazing. I present to you a list of artists that Clive Davis has personally signed. Barry Manilow, Aretha Franklin, Patti Smith, Ray Parker Jr., Alicia Keys, Carly Simon, The Grateful Dead, The Bay City Rollers, Ace of Bass, LFO, and Westlife. Oh, Westlife was in my heart so hard, I can't. Uh, He founded Arista Nashville that picked up Alan Jackson, Pam Tillis, and Brooks and Dunn. He founded LaFace Records, which picked up TLC, Pink, Usher, Outkast, and Miss Toni Braxton. Mm. He founded Bad Boy Records with Sean P. Diddy Combs, which signed Notorious B.I.G., Mace, and Faith Evans. Clive has won five Grammys as a producer, including for Kelly Clarkson's album Breakaway. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2000. And in 2018, he was an honoree at the New Jewish Homes 8 Over 80 Gala. And the idea of a gala recognizing people over a certain age instead of the typical like 30 under 30 is amazing to me. And I hope more people do that. Yes. So Clive is a damn near icon who got fired from CBS Records in 1973 for allegedly using company money to pay for his son's bar mitzvah. But he was hired by another record company before founding Arista Records in 1974. So his career didn't exactly suffer from that possible misuse of funds. Apparently, there is a Whitney Pitt. Whitney Houston biopic coming in December 2022 called I Want to Dance with Somebody. It stars Naomi Ackie as Whitney and playing Clive Davis. The one. The only. Mr. Stanley Tucci. Oh, you love him. I do love him. And now I've realized I now have a dream for introducing him somewhere. (laughs) Doesn't matter where. They could just use that that, that uh, sound clip just there. The they one, could. The only. <laughs> I feel like it was just breathy enough, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. I can't even think of how breathy it would get for Buzz Lightyear. He's <laughs> animated. <laughs> no, stop it. Jagged little pill. Pill. Uh, in 1984, Whitney sang Nobody Loves Me Like You Do 
with Jermaine Jackson on an episode of As the World Turns, followed by a bit part on the Nell Carter sitcom Gimme a Break. On February 14, 1985, after nearly two years of work, Arista Records released Whitney's debut album, Whitney Houston. The album's initial budget was $200,000, but it ended up costing nearly twice that. So when album sales started out slow, Arista Records got concerned. But by the summer, sales started to increase, and in 1986, Whitney's debut album spent 14 weeks on the Billboard 200. The album was the first debut album and the first album by a solo female artist to produce three number one singles, which included Saving All My Love For You, How Will I Know, and Greatest Love Of All. In February 1986, Whitney received four Grammy nominations, including Album of the Year, and she won Best Pop Female Vocal Performance for Saving All My Love For You. Whitney performed at the 1986 Grammys, and that performance earned her an Emmy Award in 1987. Huh. Whitney's music career took off immediately, and it became a family affair. Her father, John, started the company Nippy Inc. to help with the finances. Robin became Whitney's official assistant. And even Whitney's brother, Gary, would tag along on tours. However, he was known for borrowing money from various people on the crew and then leaving Whitney on the hook to pay them all back. But a fun fact about the earliest tour uh, is one of the backup dancers was Candy Alexander, who is best known for her role as the medical examiner on CSI Miami. Hey, now. She was also Olivia's mom on uh, Scandal. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Whitney's second album, titled Whitney, was released in June 1987, and just like her first album, it peaked at number one on the Billboard 200. The album features an impressive five top ten hits, including I Wanna Dance With Somebody, Didn't We Almost Have It All, So Emotional, and Where Do Broken Hearts Go? All peaked at number one, making Whitney the first female artist to achieve four number one hits on a single album. This also made Whitney the first artist to achieve seven consecutive number one hits, surpassing both the Bee Gees and the Beatles, which wow. had six at the time. The Whitney album also featured the top 10 hit Love Will Save the Day. The album earned Whitney three Grammy nominations. So with her album selling well and Whitney jetting off to numerous worldwide tours, she decides time to move from the cramped apartment, and she bought a five-bedroom mansion in Mendham, New Jersey. And much to Sissy's dismay, Whitney asked Robin to move in with her because they were already roommates and they were best friends, so why wouldn't they? Uh, so Whitney became a huge name almost overnight, and she was rumored to be dating Eddie Murphy. Around, according to Whitney's friend Robin, Eddie was supposed to come over for dinner one night, and the dude didn't show. Didn't even call her. So Eddie, what the fuck? <laughs> I say that with love. Of course. Uh, Eddie has always maintained they were just friends. They met at a photo op for We Are the World. Oh. At the Soul Train Music Awards in April 1989, because people are garbage, when Whitney's name was announced as nominee for Best Female R&B Single, people booed her. This <laughs> just enrages me so much. I Again, I've been living in this for a week, so I'm, I'm extra saucy. Uh, 
she's a huge talent and a huge star, and people started saying that Whitney was acting white and that she was a sellout. To the point where later in the night, when her name was said again, people started chanting, White Knee. Whitney was devastated because all she wanted more than anything in the world was to be liked. When asked about it, Whitney said, quote, I don't know how to sing black, and I don't know how to sing white either. I know how to sing. Music is not a color to me. It's an art. And I know that it's easier said than done. But fuck the haters, because over the course of her career, Whitney has won two Emmys, eight Grammys, 14 musical World Music Awards, 16 Billboard Music Awards, and 22 American Music World Awards. She also has 28 entries in the Guinness Book of World Records. Wow. Those Soul Train Music Awards would change the course of Whitney's life, as that is the night she met former New Edition member, Bobby Brown. Oh, boy. That night, Bobby won Best R&B Contemporary Album of the Year, Male, and his former group, New Edition, won Best R&B Contemporary Album, Group, Band, or Duo. Bobby also performed his hit, My Prerogative, which got everyone's attention, including Whitney. And even though he was only 21 years old at the time, Bobby had a bit of a reputation. Bobby formed the group New Edition in 1978 when he was nine? Which is a whole other... Yeah. Their belief was that they would become the new Jackson 5. They released their first album, Candy Girl, in 1983. Bobby has a lot of grotesque things to say about his start in the music biz, including... In one of his autobiographies, when he openly bragged, quote, I was the first one in the group to have sex with one of the fans. I think the other guys were still a little scared of sex, but not me. And another one, quote, once we started, they couldn't keep enough condoms on that damn bus. Oh. Bobby's newest autobiography, which I absolutely cannot recommend enough that you don't read. <laughs> uh, he says things like, quote, There was an undeniable sexual energy I brought to the stage, even as a teenager. It became clear to me very early on that whatever I was doing had a serious effect on the ladies. Everywhere I went, I was swimming in a sea of beautiful faces. They couldn't get enough of me, and the feeling was mutual. Oh. When Bobby met Whitney in 1989, he said, quote, I had the number one album in the country. I was only 20, a 20-year-old who suddenly had millions in the bank, women climbing all over him. To put it mildly, I went buck-fucking-wild. My thinking was, get as much as you can while you can. What a prince. Yeah. Somehow, <laughs> he manages to get even grosser in oh. this. <laughs> I cannot express enough how massively inflated this man's ego is. Bobby claims after Whitney showed interest in him at the Soul Train Awards that he chose to focus on another pop star instead. Quote, As my star was shining bright with success of Don't Be Cruel, I began an intoxicating whirlwind, whirlwind relationship with the beautiful, sexy Janet Jackson. Talk about the benefits of fame. Ugh. Again, for the sake of our dear listeners, do not read <laughs> his book. Don't read either book. I only read one of them. It was enough. If this ends up being my legacy, <laughs> I accept that. 
So Bobby claims that he starts uh, things up with Janet and that he bought her a white Jaguar for her 23rd birthday. And that, quote, to add a touch of class, I put an incredibly cute little white chow puppy inside the car. But since Janet was in a relationship with someone else, she refused both gifts. And don't worry, I looked into it. It sounds like he kept the dog. Okay. I was making sure he didn't dump it at a shelter. I, yeah. I expected that, but from my understanding, he has he he took care of the dog. Uh, I also find it amazing that Bobby talks about his relationship with Janet, but also says she rejected him because she was with someone else. So what is it, Bobby? Were you together or not? And to be clear, Bobby, that's rhetorical because I don't care about you. <laughs> Again, that's the energy that I am bringing to you tonight. But don't worry about Bobby. He bounced back after the alleged relationship with Janet, saying, quote, I was so hurt by Janet's rejection that I went even harder after that, having sex with any woman in my vicinity who was interested. My dancers were fair game. Again, this man. <laughs> it's so gross. It's bad, yeah. Oh, and sadly, we haven't even hit bad yet. So, uh... Bobby said he meets Whitney and they, quote, began one of the most intense, crazy, passionate relationships the world has ever seen, which is amazing because I thought you were too busy having crazy, wild, passionate sex with Janet Jackson. Great point. So what is it? Probably, if anything, both of them because he doesn't stick to one. But we'll get to that. Mm. Again, I asked Bobby, were you into Whitney? Were you into Janet? So we don't know the truth. Bobby says, quote, at the time Whitney and I started seeing each other, I was the hot guy in the industry. Women were talking. Word was getting around about me. The way I danced, the way I moved. Women wondered if I brought the same freakiness and the same moves to the bedroom. They were curious to find out if the myth was true. So in my mind, Whitney was just putting in her bid. I should point out that I was still seeing Janet Jackson. One minute I was rolling around with the industry's reigning sex symbol. The next minute I was in love with its undeniable queen. Janet, apparently, had been doing some talking as well. I found out she told her friends how great I was in bed. <laughs> Again, oh. I can't stress enough. Do not read this man's book. It's, it's... <laughs> I also just need you to remember that when someone seems like a true narcissist, uh, they are actually a real narcissist. Narcissism is based in a your brain's response to a extreme level of self-loathing. So, uh, yeah. So if it makes you feel any better, this sounds to me like he could have a, a personality disorder, but it's rooted in the fact that he deep down really fucking hates himself. Oh, good. So we feel the same <laughs> way about Bobby Brown. Good to know, Bobby. Yeah. <laughs> See what I did there? That's what I did. Uh, I did. Again, yeah, I did. This man's ego is just something else. Uh, then Bobby says Whitney started showing up unannounced at some of his tour dates. At one point, he described it as, quote, it was almost like I was being stalked, but in the best way. He also said, quote, Whitney's unannounced arrival was greeted with about the same level of enthusiasm as a venereal disease. And why would it be weird to have Whitney show up? Because also in attendance was Bobby's two children and his most recent baby mama, Kim Ward. 
Oh, Bobby admitted to having an intimate relationship with Kim for about 11 years, which wildly overlaps the relationship he was in with the woman with his first child, uh, as well as the beginning of his relationship with Whitney. But regardless as to how we feel about Bobby, Whitney was all in. So he proposed in April 1992. Whitney accepted. But Bobby told, but to, she told Bobby he needed to, quote, get all of his partying and fucking around out of his system before the wedding. Bobby agreed. So he planned a worldwide month-long bachelor party. Stop it. Which he later said, quote, made the hangover look like a Boy Scout convention in comparison. Uh And I know I'm not an expert on marriage, but if you need to essentially fuck your way around the world for four weeks before your wedding, maybe you aren't ready to get married. I'd say. I'd say that. Just a thought. Just a thought. Uh, Bobby described the event. Again, these are all Bobby's words, not mine. Quote, I rented a private jet that took us to all the well-known party spots from Las Vegas to New York to Miami to Paris. You might think of me as trying to compete, complete my fucking bucket list, strippers, midgets, you name it. By the time we got to the end of the run, we found ourselves in California. We'd all gotten to the point where we'd had enough women, drugs, and alcohol to last us a lifetime. Though I'm sure... I'm sure she didn't intend for me to dive into the concept concept with such gusto. In effect, it worked. I had no interest in straying for a very long time after that because I'd had my fill. Once again, Bobby Brown is making us all absolutely swoon with his romantic side. Again, quote, I had no interest in straying for a long time. Spoiler alert. That didn't last their entire marriage. Uh, And secondly, marrying someone is supposed to make you not want to stray. uh, (laughs) He can't. And somehow, because this man is all just always seems to keep getting worse, before this magical bachelor getaway, Bobby made a trip to tell his ex Kim that their relationship was over and that he was marrying Whitney. But somehow, instead of doing that, Bobby ended up drunkenly impregnating Kim instead. Wait, wait, wait. While he's with while he's with Whitney. Yep. Okay. Months like two months before their wedding. Of course. Uh even after the news, Whitney went ahead with the wedding, and on July 18th, 1992, Whitney got married in front of 800 guests at Whitney's home in Mendham. At the time, Whitney was 28 and Bobby was 23. I didn't realize the age difference there. It's fine, but God, you could have done better. Well, uh, fun fact, according to Robin Crawford, on the day of the wedding, Eddie Murphy called Whitney's private line. Was it an attempt to get her to change her mind? We'll never know. But if you wanted that, Eddie, you shouldn't have ghosted her years ago. <laughs> yes. Anyhow, that's also a couple I would have liked to have seen, but still. Uh, so on November 26th, 1992, Just four months after their wedding, Bobby's ex-girlfriend gave birth to their son and his third child, Bobby Brown Jr. And then seven and a half months after the wedding, on March 4th, 1993, Whitney gave birth to Bobby's fourth child, Bobby Christina Brown. Fun fact, Bobby Christina's godfather is Clive Davis. Hey! Just four months after Bobby was born, Whitney was pushed out on tour. 
And if that isn't bad enough, Bobby was allegedly born via emergency C-section after 14 hours of labor. And I'll say it, as someone who has had multiple C-sections, it is a major surgery. Yeah. The idea that Whitney had to go on tour so soon after is so sad, but also enraging to me. Whitney said, quote, there's been nothing more incredible in my life than having Bobby Christina when I gave birth to her and they put her in my arms i thought this has got to be it this is the ultimate i haven't experienced anything greater now i got a bit distracted there with whitney's relationship with bobby brown so let me give you a quick rundown on whitney's career during the time on january 27th 1991 whitney sang the national anthem at the super bowl 25 in florida and for any sports ball enthusiasts who care, the game featured the New York Giants and the Buffalo Bills, and the Giants won 20-19. And of course, Whitney blew everyone away with her performance, to the point where the haters finally stopped saying she wasn't black enough or that she had sold out. They could no longer deny her incredible talent. And she was so talented, in fact, her rendition of the Star Spangled Banner hit number 20 on the Billboard charts. <laughs> Wow. The single hit the charts again in 2001 after the September 11th terrorist attacks, and that time it peaked at number six. Wow. Whitney donated all of the proceeds from the single to the American Red Cross. So while riding the high of her incredible performance, Whitney starts thinking she would like to get into acting. Enter Kevin Costner. For those who don't know, he's an actor known for so many classics like Waterworld, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, and he even won an Oscar for the direction of Dances with Wolves. Kevin currently appears in the TV series Yellowstone, which is incredibly hot right now. I haven't seen it, but it features Wes Bentley and Cole Hauser, so you know I'm going to get into it at some point. <laughs> which is nice to say, because that means Blanche is still in there somewhere. <laughs> Uh, just a, a more maybe subdued Blanche, or it was when I made the notes, and then and then I got light-eared. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to think about what that sex move would mean. No, I can't. No. Nope. I can't think about it. Uh, apparently, before Kevin made it as an actor, he worked at Disneyland as a skipper on the Jungle Cruise. Hey! Also, fun fact about Kevin Costner, the role of the president in the 1997 movie Air Force One was originally written for Kevin, but he was busy filming The Postman and had to pass, so the role went to Harrison Ford. And then the lead character in the 2002 film Dragonfly was written for Harrison Ford, but he wanted to take a year off, so he passed, and the role went to Kevin. <laughs> oh my god. And that is what you get with True Crime and Cocktails. Come for the true crime, stay for the factoids. Factoids. <laughs> She's something else tonight. Uh, I bring all of this up now so that you know when I'm speaking about Kevin Costner, you know who I mean, and you don't think I mean Kevin Costner from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> so, Kevin Costner uh, wanted to make this movie called The Bodyguard, and he wanted Whitney to play the lead. In fact, Kevin had so 
much faith in Whitney that he had been calling her to offer her the role for years. But Whitney, who had an interest in acting, felt the role was too big for her. But Kevin persisted, and in 1991, Whitney finally agreed to do the movie. And as a producer of the film, Kevin was the one who originally suggested Whitney for the role, and when the studio said no, Kevin pushed for her. So kudos Kevin Costner for being a seemingly decent man. And if it turns out that he's problematic, please don't tell me. I want to live in a world where Kevin Costner is a gentleman and can get it. (laughs) I need you to know I added can get it uh, to my notes after we light yeared. (laughs) It has so many meanings. It does. Uh, So Kevin pushes for Whitney to be Rachel Marone. Marone? Uh, a pop singer who starts receiving threatening notes, so her manager hires the uptight but handsome bodyguard played by Kevin Costner. The movie was a box office hit, and so was the soundtrack. The movie received two Oscar nominations for Best Music Original Song, but the true hit of the soundtrack was Whitney Houston's rendition of I Will Always Love You. The song has sold more than 20 million copies and is the fifth best-selling single of all time. And to t- the top-selling single of all time by a female performer to this day. Wow. For those who are curious, the rest of the top five, Elton John's Something in the Way You Look Tonight slash Candle in the Wind, Mungo Jerry's In the Summertime, and Bill Haley and the Comets Rock Around the Clock. The number one best-selling single of all time, more than 50 million sold. Bing Crosby's White Christmas. Wow! Yeah! And because I am always making sure to be on top of my info-giving game, the song I Will Always Love You was written by an absolute angel on earth, Miss Dolly Parton. It is one of more than 3,000 songs that she has written. Wow! And according to an interview in 2018, Dolly wrote I Will Always Love You on the same day that she wrote Jolene, which is so impressive. Shout out, Dolly Parton. Yes. Dolly originally recorded I Will Always Love You in 1973 and again in 1982 for the soundtrack of The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. So the song hit number one on the U.S. country charts twice. And while I'm already talking about her, I want to add that Dolly has had 44 top 10 country albums and 110 career charted singles in the span of 40 years. Shout out to my favorite Dolly Parton movie, Straight Talk, which unfortunately also stars James Woods. But Dolly's charm surpasses the disappointment you feel every time Woods is on screen. (laughs) Fun fact uh, about The Bodyguard, Whitney was originally supposed to sing What Becomes of the Brokenhearted, but the song just wasn't working. Kevin Costner suggested Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You, and the rest, as they say, is history. So again... Kudos, Kevin Costner, for his amazing vision on that project. Yeah. The soundtrack has sold more than 32 million copies, making it the third highest selling album of all time, the top selling soundtrack of all time. The top selling album is Michael Jackson's Thriller from 1982 at 49 million. Second place, ACDC's Back in Black from 1980 sold 29 and a half million. Wow. When Bobby talks about The Bodyguard, uh, and I know you're all super excited to hear his opinion on it, uh, he said he was nervous about Whitney filming it. And this 
is a direct quote. I didn't trust her playing the love interest of Costner. I wasn't that familiar with how movies were made and what goes on behind the scenes of a movie set. I knew how smooth Costner was, so I told her I needed to be on set too. Whitney said no. (laughs) Good for her. her. Hey, I like that. Uh, She said Bobby's presence would make her uncomfortable. It's wild to me that a man who openly cheated on her so many times is worried that she'll cheat while on the set of a movie. But isn't that how that goes? Because he hates himself. A (laughs) hundred percent. Bobby also claims that he was... uh, concerned about the movie because Whitney was pregnant at the time. Whitney suffered a miscarriage while filming, and when Bobby heard, Mm. he allegedly rushed to set. Quote, I immediately jumped on a plane to go spend time with her on set. As soon as I arrived, I started to get suspicious. I'm no medical doctor, but she was not acting like a woman who was in the throes of mourning a lost baby. And to that I say, Bobby, one, she had no reason to lie about whether she was pregnant. Uh, yeah. Two, everyone reacts to situations differently. Three, maybe she went on with work because she was a goddamn professional. And four, just shut the fuck up, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> I get angrier with him, if you can believe it. Uh, Bobby admits decades later, he still doesn't believe that Whitney was ever pregnant, saying, quote, to this day, I believe her pregnancy was a story that was concocted by her people to explain to the public why she would marry Bobby Brown. Oh, boy. So again, fucking hates himself. Yep. Feels like they needed an excuse. Exactly. He's he's too much. Uh, If I could say one single thing to Whitney Houston, it would be that Bobby Brown never deserved you. Nope. When the 1994 Music Awards season hit, Whitney cleaned up. She won three Grammys five NAACP Image Awards, five World Music Awards, eight American Music Awards, 11 Billboard Awards, and at the Soul Train Music Awards, where Whitney was booed just five years before. She won R&B Song of the Year for I Will Always Love You and received the Sammy Davis Jr. Entertainer of the Year Award. And fun fact about the American Music Awards, to this day, Whitney and Michael Jackson are tied for the most wins at a single single ceremony with eight each. Wow. So coming off the bodyguard, Whitney's career is going strong. She continued with the 1995 movie Waiting to Exhale, followed by The Preacher's Wife in 1996. The soundtrack for The Preacher's Wife, which included songs by Annie Lennox and Babyface, and featured Whitney singing lead on 14 of the 15 tracks, was released November 26, 1996. It immediately went to the top of the gospel charts, where it was number one for 26 consecutive weeks. It remained on the chart for 117 weeks, has sold more than 6 million copies worldwide, and as of February 2022, it is the best gospel-selling album of all time. Wow! At this point, Whitney seemed unstoppable and on top of the world. But sadly, this was the moment when Whitney's secret struggles threatened to tear her apart. Oh, well, that feels like a stopping point right there. My goodness. Oh, I uh, I know that this may be preemptive, but I'm going to say it already. Get the blankets. Oh, Get the yeah. blankets. I feel like uh, Whitney may be getting inducted into that 
Very sad Hall of Fame that we have here on the show. Um, But before we get to that, let's take one quick break. Uh, Go hit the can, grab a can. I'm sorry. I don't know. And we're going to be right back talking about Whitney Houston on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing Whitney Houston. Before the break... Christy was at a low simmer about her true vitriol for Bobby Brown, and I have a feeling it's going to come up to a rolling boil. Christy? Thank you for putting that in kitchen terms. You're very welcome. I like that a lot. So, throughout the 90s, Whitney Houston's star continued to rise, which kept her busy nonstop. Not only uh, were there seemingly endless tours and benefit performances. She also played fairy godmother to Brandy Norwood's Cinderella in the TV movie Cinderella in November 1997. So on the outside, it seemed as though Whitney had it all. But then the media started to report that Whitney Whitney abused substances. But most of the public didn't realize that drugs have been a part of Whitney's life since she was a teenager. When Whitney first met Robin Crawford in the summer of 1980, Robin said that Whitney pulled out a cigarette and then pulled out a joint. Robin said that she was surprised that Whitney did any sort of drugs, as Robin wasn't into it at the time. She said she sold pot in high school to cheerleaders, but didn't smoke it herself. But once she became friends with Whitney, the two would often smoke pot together before branching out to harder drugs. But Whitney's substance abuse substance use got so bad that even Robin became concerned. In the late 1980s, Robin approached Sissy with her concerns. Robin said if they had any drugs in the house, Robin could use and then stop. But Whitney could not stop until they were all gone. Sissy said, quote, I might not have liked certain things about Robin, but I will say this. She cared a great deal for Nippy and wanted to protect her. Mm. Sissy asked Whitney about her drug use, but Whitney brushed her off. And as her fame grew, Whitney felt an overwhelming pressure, especially when it came to touring. She felt personally responsible for the livelihoods of the hundreds of people who made the concerts possible, which is an insane amount of pressure to put on anybody, especially when she's told that if she doesn't do a tour, her and her daughter are out on the street. 
which was a lie. <laughs> but of course, her family wanted Whitney to tour since she was unknowingly bankrolling their lives. Mm. According to bookkeeper Cindy Madnick, Bobby Brown's mother called Nippy Inc. for money like it was some kind of ATM. Any type of bill she had, any kind, she would call Whitney's company to pay it for her. Mm. Turns out that Nippy Inc. was paying for the homes, cars, insurance, everything of Whitney's family members, as well as a senior employee at the company. Whitney's father, John, even set up an account for Nippy Inc. at a mobile station near his office, and he, is, he and Sissy used it instead of paying for gas themselves. Mm. When Whitney found out, she said, quote, that doesn't make sense. My mother has her own money. Oh, uh-huh. John was worried about Whitney, but not about the drugs, about the idea that Whitney couldn't survive any real crisis or disappointment, because as Sissy puts it, quote, he and I had done such a good job of protecting her that Nippy never faced any real trauma in her life up until then. I would argue that growing up in a home where you witnessed your parents having huge major verbal fights could be considered trauma. But I'm not a psychiatrist. But what Sissy didn't know was that both of her sons were also heavily using drugs. Her oldest son, Gary, admitted to starting drugs at the age of 10, and it was Gary's friend who gave Robin Crawford cocaine for the first time. Oh, wow. And in the late 1980s, Whitney's brother, Michael, was the one who taught Whitney how to freebase cocaine. Oh, boy. Robin also said that Michael was the one who got Robin and Whitney any drugs they wanted. Again, I could argue that growing up in a home where your old, older siblings are getting you to try serious drugs at a young, impressionable age could be considered trauma. But again, I'm not a doctor. Also, again, I don't know if anyone else recalls this, but I mentioned earlier Whitney was horribly bullied as a child. Children following her home from school to beat her up, but she never experienced any trauma mm. because Sissy was too good. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Oh, there's that simmer. <laughs> Whitney's drug use escalated after the birth of her daughter. Whitney later admitted in an interview with Oprah that she started to lace her joints with cocaine and that after Bobby Christina was born, Whitney spent days and nights getting high with Bobby watching TV, and practically living in her pajamas. Some may wonder, why would the birth of her child cause her to increase her drug use? I don't have an official answer, but to understand her frame of mind in that moment, Bobby was born after 14 hours of labor, which is already rough enough, and an emergency C-section. I said it before, but it is a major surgery to experience. And on top of that, four months later, she was forced onto a tour. Mm. I'm sure she was exhausted, possibly in pain. And maybe there is even like a postpartum depression involved. My point is she had a lot of things shoved at her at once. So I'm not surprised that she fell back into an old routine. Bobby claimed he hadn't done cocaine before he met Whitney and that she even did some on their wedding day. Bobby said that he started using heroin throughout the 90s, and because of a $25,000 drug debt, Bobby was allegedly abducted by a street gang known as the Preacher Crew. Whitney allegedly paid a $400,000 ransom to get Bobby back. Was he worth it? We'll get into that in a moment. 
Whitney became difficult to work with and started showing up late to everything, including interviews and performances. In 1994, Whitney was two hours late to the White House state dinner, and later she was four hours late for a Jane magazine photo shoot. At the start of filming Waiting to Exhale, Whitney was sober. But partway through filming, she overdosed on cocaine. Mm. And the 1996 release of The Preacher's Wife, Whitney was using drugs every single day. She said, quote, I was losing myself. Oh. In 1999, Whitney was struggling to finish a tour and even had to cancel five of the shows. Her substance abuse had reached a peak and there were problems between Bobby and Robin that wreaked havoc on Whitney. It was no secret that Bobby didn't like Robin because I think he couldn't stand the idea of Whitney being close with someone other than him. Things got to the point where Bobby and Robin would have physical altercations, and if Bobby didn't like something Robin said, he'd yell and scream in her face. Robin finally couldn't take it anymore, and she resigned from Whitney's company, Nippy Inc. The loss was devastating for Whitney, so Robin, as Robin was her closest friend, so when Robin quit, which I do not blame her for doing, yeah. Whitney lost her only friend, which made her spiral even further. During the tour, Dave, David Roberts, Whitney's bodyguard, submitted a report to the people in charge at Nippy Inc. to tell them that Whitney needed help. The reports very bluntly mentioned that Whitney was heavily addicted to marijuana and cocaine, and the majority of the people on tour, including Whitney's security, chauffeur, wardrobe director, nanny, hairdresser, makeup artist, etc., were also all heavily involved or addicted to cocaine and marijuana. David said that the ravages of alcohol and substance abuse had permanently damaged Whitney's vocal cords and that she was destroying herself. Mm. Keep in mind, this report went to Whitney's parents, her lawyers, everyone at the top of Nippy Inc. Uh, and nothing was done. I shouldn't say nothing. After the report, the company did fire the bodyguard saying, quote, she doesn't need you anymore. She won't be touring internationally. So, for submitting the report, he got fired. Oof. Yep. Despite not reacting to the report, Sissy did try and stage a few interventions in the late 90s, including once getting a court order to force Whitney into a rehab facility in Atlanta in March 2005. Whitney also attended Crossroads, the rehab center in Antigua that was founded with support from Eric Clapton in 1998. Mm. And yet, in her book... Sissy questioned if she could have saved Whitney and whether she did enough or if she was a good mother. And that somehow really quickly turns into, quote, I wonder whether Nippy loved me. She always told me she did, but you know, she didn't call me much. She didn't come and see me as much as I hoped she would. And I just feel like that's... Okay. Okay. That's a turn that didn't need to happen, Sissy, yeah. but... okay. Clive Davis even offered his Hampton house as a sort of rehab, saying that Whitney could go there for a few days, bring a couple of friends, and clean up. Unfortunately, the friend that Whitney chose to bring with her was her brother Michael, and the pair just got high for two days. Mm. Then in 2000, Clive Davis left Arista Records to start his own label, and he didn't bring Whitney with him. Oh, which wow. Devastated her. 
Things further spiraled when she was set to perform Somewhere Over the Rainbow at the 72nd Annual Academy Awards, but on the Friday rehearsal, she was so out of it, she couldn't remember the words, and she was replaced by Faith Hill for the live show. Boy. Whitney was openly falling apart. In 2000, she was caught with half an ounce of marijuana at the Kalua Kona Airport in Hawaii. And in September 2001, at the 30th anniversary tribute for Michael Jackson, Whitney showed up so emaciated that you could see the bones of her clavicle. Her publicist said that she'd lost weight due to stress of family matters. But she looked so sickly after that performance that rumors spread that she died from an overdose. Wow. She had had not. Uh, Whitney never denied her drug use, once saying, quote, I had so much money and so much access to what I wanted. But she always tried to downplay it and say, quote, it's not as serious as you're making it out to be. And sadly, I think that's the same mentality that everyone close to Whitney had. None of them realized that there was a problem until it was too late. Mm. And just when Whitney was in the true depths of her addiction, a file lawsuit was filed on behalf of Whitney's father, John, by John's driver, Keith Skinner, the lawsuit claimed that Whitney failed to pay John for representing her for the past two years and that she owed him $100 million. What? John passed away five months later, but Skinner pressed on with the lawsuit. Not so shockingly, the lawsuit was dismissed in 2004, so I don't know how involved with it John actually was, but I hope that his driver just put his name on it because the idea that he believed Whitney owed him anything is enraging to me. Yeah. Uh, But I'm more likely to believe that maybe the lawsuit was just Keith Skinner's attempt at squeezing more money out of the Houston family, knowing that John was dying and he'd be soon out of a job. Keith was also a convicted drug dealer. So take that from that what you will. Uh, Now, we can't get into Whitney's problems without bringing back Bobby Brown. (laughs) (laughs) Most people question why Whitney ever went for someone like Bobby, but he practically grew up in the music business, so he understood the pressures that Whitney faced, and she felt like she could be herself around him. But Bobby wasn't without his own problems. Not only was he known for moments of rage where he'd smash the windows of Whitney's Porsche, which he allegedly did on multiple occasions. Whitney once told Oprah that Bobby would smash things, break things, and cut her head off pictures. Jesus. Oprah said that Whitney was making herself small so that Bobby could feel bigger. Because after all, Bobby's career wasn't anywhere near as successful as Whitney's, and for their entire marriage, Bobby was using credit cards that were registered to Nippy Inc. He was driving cars that belonged to Whitney, and when that 1999 tour was being scheduled, Bobby was the one who said, nope, we gotta add more dates. Even though his wife was very clearly not healthy enough to be touring at the time. Bobby claims he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in 2001 at the age of 32, but there is no word on whether or not he has sought any form of treatment or not. Hmm. But Bobby was also known for several run-ins with the law. We don't have time uh, to get into every single incident, so I'm going to give you a very edited list. He was arrested numerous times for driving under the influence, including in 1996, 
1998, and twice in 2012. April 1995, Bobby, his publicist, and his bodyguard were charged with assault after attacking a man at Walt Disney World. Wow! (laughs) The man required six stitches to the back of his head, and part of his ear needed to be surgically reattached. Jesus! While in the back of a police car after that incident, Bobby scratched four-letter words into the vinyl seats and then urinated in the car. Bobby said he ended up paying the victim about $30,000 in an out-of-court settlement, so the charges were dropped. In August 1995, Bobby was charged with battery after kicking a hotel security guard who'd gone to Bobby's room about noise complaints. In January 1998, Bobby was convicted of driving under the influence and causing property damage. In 2000, Bobby spent 26 days in jail after being arrested for an outstanding warrant for violating probation from his 1996 drunk driving conviction. March 2004, Bobby was sentenced to 90 days in jail for owing $63,000 in back child support to Kim Ward. Bobby spent one night in prison before the amount was paid and he was released. Then just three months later, uh, he received a suspended sentence for missing three consecutive child support payments. Ugh. And in February 2007, Bobby was sentenced to 30 days in jail for $20,000 worth of unpaid child support. He was released three days later when a radio station paid his unpaid child support. Why did they do that? He repeatedly didn't pay child support. Let him fucking rot in jail. <laughs> yes. It's it's just, I, I can't. Uh, what does Bobby have to say oh, about no. all this unpaid child support? Because I know we want to know. We do. We do. Qu- quote, one of the biggest mistakes I made was allowing all my stuff, my finances, my royalties to get commingled with hers and to be taken care of by her financial people. When you have as much money as we did, you have money managers set up to pay your bills. Instead of keeping the team I already had, I let my finances be handled by the same people who are handling hers. That's how I ran into trouble with things like child support, because I assumed they were writing my child support checks regularly, and I found out they weren't. Uh Mm Uh-huh. Sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Always someone else's fault. Bobby claims when he married Whitney, he had more than $50 million in the bank. And yet the media kept portraying him as a gold digger. Bobby described it as, quote, the, That emasculating image of me as the leech continued throughout our marriage. And the last part of Bobby's rap sheet that I'm going to get into is in December 2003, Bobby was charged with battery after striking Whitney and threatening to, quote, beat her ass. Oh, boy. Police reported visible injuries to Whitney's face, including a bruise on her cheek and a cut on the inside of her upper lip. Bobby said, quote, Whitney said I hit her and spit at her in front of Chrissy, but that never happened. I never spit at her, and my daughter was upstairs sleeping during the fight. Oh, great. So does that mean that you admit to hitting her? Because you've only just denied not spitting. That's what it sounds like to me. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, And there was also the time in 1995 when New Edition asked Bobby to rejoin the group for a tour. Bobby says, quote, The members of New Edition couldn't deny my success, so they granted me the respect I hoped for when we came back together. His ego? 
kills me. So he rejoins, he joins, rejoins a uh, new edition. They put out an album. They go on tour. Whitney, as she has done in the past, surprises Bobby at one of the dates. He refuses to open his hotel room door. He then screams at her, saying, quote, I don't want you here. This is my thing, my time. And when Whitney asked why he didn't answer the door, he spit in her face. Oh, my God. Yep. Whitney turned and walked towards her own room. Bobby followed her and threw a glass at her. So Whitney picked up the phone to call her father. Bobby grabbed the receiver and hit Whitney in the head with it. Jesus. Whitney herself admitted that Bobby was emotionally abusive, but she denied the physical abuse, saying, quote, He slapped me once, but he got hit in the head three times by me. But that feels like classic covering for an abuser behavior. But again, I'm not an expert. Again, you deserved so much better than yeah, that, man. Yeah. But let's not forget all the times the press claimed that Bobby was a cheater, uh, which, of course, he denies, just like he denies everything else. Uh, he openly admitted to sleeping around on Whitney for a solid month before their wedding, although he doesn't see that as cheating. Then there was the time that he got one of his ex-girlfriends pregnant just months before his wedding. And according to Robin Crawford, Whitney once hired a private investigator to follow Bobby, and they caught him sleeping with a well-known musician's daughter. <sighs> and yeah, I'm dying to know who yeah, is. Yeah. Because there's so many options. I know. I'm just like, is the daughter also a singer? Give me another clue. Let us, yeah, give us one more piece. Tell us a name. We won't tell anyone, but our close friends. We will be telling everyone on the show. Yeah. Uh, Bobby, where are we going? Oh, here we go. Bob, Bobby. I was going to call him Bob. <laughs> nope. I don't want to be too familiar. Um, he had some thoughts on whether or not he's cheated. No, oh, boy. On Whitney. Quote, though I was repeatedly labeled in the tabloids as the cheater, let me say that Whitney did her share of cheating, too. Oh, great. In fact, she cheated before I did. She slept with quite a few of the producers and artists that she worked with or associated with her over the years. I won't drop names here because they're still around and view me as a friend. I could find no uh, evidence anywhere of uh, any sort of affair that Whitney may have had, but also to suggest that she was sleeping with producers... And stuff as though you're suggesting she may have slept her way to the success she had that was more than yours. Bobby, I can't. <laughs> uh, Bobby did also claim that Whitney had an affair with Tupac, which I hope she did. And yeah. I hope he gave her the night of her life. That's where I'm <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm so over Bobby Brown. I was never into Bobby Brown, but I am so over Bobby Brown. Yeah. Uh, but isn't it just classic cheater behavior to claim that the person you're cheating on is the one who is actually cheating all along? At one point, Bobby accused Whitney of sleeping with her bodyguard, so he had the guy fired. In short, Bobby abused her, falsely accused her of cheating, and had jealous, violent rages time and time again. Robin described it as, quote, her marriage was extinguishing what little self-esteem she had left. 
In classic abuser fashion, Bobby claimed Whitney was, quote, the crazy one. The best summary of their marriage that I found was by Robin Crawford, who said, quote, Bobby brought her down because he wanted to be up. In 2005, the world finally got to see what their life together was like when uh, Bravo released Being Bobby Brown. The 10-episode series first aired in June 2005, with the first episode showing Whitney and Bobby being reunited after one of his many stints in jail. The show was described as, quote, the most disgusting series to ever ooze its way onto TV. (laughs) Wow! And that it, quote, reveals Bobby to be even more vulgar than the tabloids suggest. Wow. The show was canceled when Whitney refused to appear in any more episodes. So I love that the show was named for him, but once Whitney's out, they're not interested. Mm Mm-hmm. Because she was the star, Bobby. Not you. Yep. I don't know what voice that is, but that's where I liked it. Uh, And just in case you think that Bobby Brown might have some redeeming qualities, at one point during their reality show, Bobby complains that their daughter, who was like 2005, she was like maybe 10, 12, uh, was getting a bit of a double chin. Oh, no. Whitney shut that shit down immediately, barely came out of his mouth, and she, like a boss, looked at him and went, do not tell her that. Let this be a reminder that people should stop feeling the need to have an opinion on anybody else's weight. Thank you. Just stop it. Whether you're Bobby or not, just stop. Uh, I will give one fun fact about Bobby Brown. His former attorney, uh, Phaedra Parks, was on The Real Housewives of Atlanta from season three to season nine. Oh, wow. And I like that my fun fact about Bobby wasn't about Bobby. Bobby and Whitney divorced in 2007, and Whitney was awarded sole custody of Bobby Christina. Around this same time, Clive Davis approached Whitney and asked if she was ready for her comeback. Clive hired Diane Warren to write songs for Whitney's next album. Whitney performed at the American Music Awards in November 2009. Her vocal strength had returned to like 75% of what it was, and she blew the roof off the place. Diane Warren said, quote, it was one of the best performances I've ever seen. Whitney is back. Whitney's new album, I Look to You, was released in 2009 to positive reviews. The album ended up selling well, but once again, Whitney was pushed into doing a tour that she was in no condition to do. As her voice was starting to come back to full strength, her body, though, was still struggling. At one point, Whitney planned to have a facelift, but the plastic surgeon refused because she failed the physical, which looks into the patient's heart, liver, and lungs. Shit. And that's sometime in the mid-2000s, so I wish that information had been passed on to a medical doctor that could see her. Would have been nice. Or anybody who would care to do something with that information. Uh, Whitney then focused on a project she'd been working on for decades, and that is a remake of the 1976 movie Sparkle. While it was in theaters, Whitney said she spent almost every Saturday at the theater watching Sparkle on repeat. So she ended up buying the rights to the film in the early 90s and hoped to produce the movie with Aaliyah in the lead role. 
But after Aaliyah's death in 2001, the project got postponed, and finally in 2011, Sparkle started filming with Jordan Sparks as the lead. I'm just realizing, Jordan Sparks in Sparkle? Come on, that writes itself. That feels right, yeah. It would be Whitney's final film performance, although it would be released after her death. And something that many people may not know, Whitney was the producer for Sparkle, as well as both Princess Diaries movies, and all three Cheetah Girls movies. Hey! Whitney also also produced Cinderella in 97, which featured Whitney as the fairy godmother. The movie also featured Bernadette Peters, which makes this two episodes in a row that I've organically mentioned Bernadette (laughs) Peters. Tune in next week to see if I can make it three. (laughs) Whitney admitted herself to rehab twice in 2010 before ending the year completely sober before she returned to rehab in May of 2011. Cut to February 2012, Clive Davis invites Whitney to a pre-Grammy awards party on February 11th. So Whitney arrives in L.A. and checks into room 434, a presidential junior suite under the name Elizabeth Collins. The unfortunate part is for unknown reasons, Whitney chose to arrive a week in advance, which feels dangerous for someone just nine months out of rehab, to be in a city like L.A. on their own. Yeah. Throughout throughout the week, Whitney was seen drinking vodka at various Hollywood nightclubs, celebrating the 31st birthday of her alleged boyfriend, Willie Norwood, a.k.a. Ray J., a.k.a. Brandy's brother, a.k.a. Kim Kardashian's partner in that 2007 sex tape. That's right. Whitney was seen doing handstands by the hotel pool, and while the tabloids said she was out of control, her family and friends came back and said, oh, those handstands are proof that she's got newfound stamina and dedication to daily exercise. On February 11th, Whitney's assistant, Mary Jones, left the hotel to pick up a package from Neiman Marcus. She returned at 3.35 p.m. Whitney's bodyguard, Ray Watson, was standing in the hall. Mary entered the suite and found Whitney face down in a foot of water in the bathtub. She tried to administer CPR and called the front desk, who then called 911. Emergency crews arrived and Whitney was officially pronounced dead at 3.55 p.m. She was just 48 years old. According to Vanity Fair, the police found plates of food, a bottle of beer, an unopened bottle of champagne, and some prescription medications. When the initial autopsy results were released six weeks later, they listed Whitney's cause of death as accidental drowning with heart disease and cocaine in her system as contributing factors. She had used cocaine, quote, just probably immediately prior to drowning, and her condition indicated, quote, an acute use of the substance. There were also traces of marijuana, the muscle relaxant flexoril, flexoril, the allergy medicine Benadryl, and the anti-anxiety medication Xanax. Now, the report claims there was cocaine in Whitney's system, but none was found in the room. Is it possible she finished what amount she had? Sure. But someone claims he removed the cocaine, among other incriminating items, from the room after Whitney died. Who is this mysterious person? I give Lauren a approximate timeline of uh so she knows a pro you know it's what we do so we can tell time-wise how things are going i purposely left this man's name (laughs) off 
because I wanted to get her reaction in real time. I can't wait. Um, this is his real first name. It's a man named Raffles. Stop it. <laughs> does he does he have contests for prizes? <laughs> it's just he goes by many surnames like Van Exel, Everett, and Samson, among others. But from what I can best tell, his real name is Raffles Dawson. <laughs> oh boy. I can't. I can't. Raffles claimed to be a close friend of Whitney's, who removed clothing and any illegal drugs from the suite after Whitney's death. It turns out that Raffles was also the one who supplied Whitney with the drugs in the first place. So who the heck is Raffles? Well, he claimed to be a close friend with numerous celebrities, but it turns out that Raffles was nothing but a con artist who, according to Vanity Fair, had a specialty for crashing celebrity circles. He claimed to be connected to the owners of the Raffles Hotel chain, but in reality, he's an illegal immigrant from Suriname. Huh. In the late 1980s, Raffles moved to Chicago and became chummy with the cousin of jazz legend Cab Calloway, which somehow led Raffles to getting a key to Cab Calloway's house and his own room there to stay rent-free. And it was hanging out with Calloway that Raffles got attend got to attend a Whitney Houston concert. He got to meet Whitney after the show with his good old buddy, Cab Calloway. And that seems to be his thing. He manages to get close to a celebrity and uses them to get close to other celebrities. In 2002, Raffles was hanging out in the Netherlands. He promised the wife of a billionaire that he would include her in a 9-11 memorial concert that he was organizing. Raffles claims the show was going to have Madonna, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston. So this woman pays for Raffles to fly back and forth to the U.S. while organizing the show. And she's nobody but married to a billionaire, but she thinks she's something of a singer. So she ends up calling the Kennedy Center and is like, so, can't wait for my spot. And they're like, what are you talking about? The concert didn't exist. Mm. Uh, and soon, Raffles kind of had to leave the, ne the Netherlands for good. Uh, so he landed in Beverly Hills, where he tried to get a reality show based on his ability to, and this is a Raffles quote, break into society through what is described as the art of the con. Oh, boy. He once lied and said he was the son of a jazz musician in order to get closer to Stevie Wonder. He told a band leader during a concert that he was the guest singer, and they let him on stage, and he sang at a show in Phoenix. Wow. He showed up uninvited to a party at Michael Jackson's Neverland Estate and started greeting guests at the gate for long enough that people started to think it was his party. And just like that, suddenly, he's friends with Michael Jackson. And then at one point, Raffles posed as the publicist for Michael Jackson's father, Joe Jackson, and started arranging interviews for him. And then 2002 again, he shoplifted a $750 Ralph Lauren sweater from Neiman Marcus in Chicago, which got him a third-degree felony conviction. And the dude has a ton of credit card fraud, 
He has been arrested numerous times under numerous names. I just don't know how this guy continues to get away with it. Maybe he has celebrity friends who are helping him out of these jams. I mean, he lived with Cab Calloway for a while. He even claims he lived in Whitney's guest house for months. Again, this is Raffles, quote, helped Bobby in the studio and was present at all of their concerts. We went to the Oscars and Grammys together, every award show. I was treated as family and played with their kids. So I wouldn't be surprised if he found some celebs who were willing to do him a favor and make his arrests disappear. Some believe that his misdeeds were covered up by TMZ and Star Magazine because he was one of their biggest sources. Interesting. Mm-hmm. The day that Whitney died, Raffles used her ticket, used Whitney's ticket to get into Clive Davidson Davis's pre-Grammy party. He spent the evening crying and telling people that he was the one who found Whitney. <sighs> Maybe if your supposed best friend, close friend, whatever, is found dead, you don't go to a party that night? Maybe? Yeah, maybe. Um, it was reported that Whitney's assistant found her, but he, of course, told everybody he was the one who found her. And who knows, maybe he found her first, took whatever he needed from the room, and then the assistant came in. Maybe he was there when she died. We don't know. Yeah. Uh, Raffles told a Dutch news reporter that he was sorting Whitney's clothes for the family. Which to me sounds like he was just outright taking her clothes to sell them. Yeah. But maybe I'm wrong. He even flew on Tyler Perry's private jet to attend Whitney's funeral, where Raffles took a photo of Whitney in the open casket and sold it to the National Enquirer for nearly half a million dollars. Okay. Nope. Yep. Nope. There is a... Current change.org petition demanding that police investigate Raffles for Whitney Houston's death. He was allegedly never questioned by police. Oh, of course. That makes sense. Yep. After Whitney's death, Raffles was being called an entertainment consultant. And then the truth about his cons and his previous arrests for theft and credit card fraud started coming up. Currently, Raffles is 54 years old, and it is believed he is back home in Suriname. So basically, Raffles is he the human equivalent of the phrase, fake it till you make it. To quote Raffles himself, everybody has a law and a rule, and they are all made to be broken. As long as you do it elegant, it's all yours. <laughs> I cannot stand people who use other people, especially those who do it for a living. Yeah. And also, I, too, may I also just say, like, yeah, do it. What did he say? Do it classy or do it elegant? elegant. Do it elegant. I don't think there's anything elegant about taking a picture of a dead celebrity in a uh, at their funeral uh, and no. selling it. That's that's not no. elegant. Raffles. I know. I can't. <laughs> It's step right up. <laughs> I know. Every time I say his name, I'm like, that's nope. 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 No so thanks. Serve. Bye. Uh, at the 54th Grammy Awards, the night after Whitney's death, the smooth as hell host LL Cool J opened the show with a prayer and a tribute in Whitney's honor. And something that I found truly lovely is that Kevin Costner gave a eulogy at Whitney's funeral. That's nice. Again? He feels like an old school gentleman. Please. 
let me have this. Put him on the island with Michael Landon, okay? Let's just yeah. let him stay there. Let him run. Let him dig. Leave him alone, okay? Leave them. Just For us. Them. For us. Please. Whitney's daughter, Bobby, who was just 18 at the time of her mother's death, became inconsolable and days later had to be hospitalized. Friends said that Bobby was overwhelmed, as Whitney had left her daughter as her sole beneficiary. Bobby would receive trust fund payments until she reached the age of 30, after which she would receive the remainder of Whitney's $115 million estate. Wow. Which I remind you, on multiple occasions, Whitney was told she had no money and that she had to go on tour or else she and her daughter would be on the street. Ugh. So it sounds to me like someone was just trying to push Whitney to make more money, which is disgusting. After Whitney's death, Bobby Christina stated she wanted to carry on her mother's legacy and get into singing and acting. Bobby had a small part in the Tyler Perry series, For Better or Worse. And when Angela Bassett announced that she was making a biopic about Whitney, Bobby was hoping to be cast as her mother. Angela did not cast her. And there was some bad blood there. Interesting. For a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, shortly after Whitney's death, Bobby Christina began to publicly date Nick Gordon. Now, Nick is just an odd part in this entire story. I couldn't find exactly when it happened or even how it happened. But in the early 2000s, around the time when Nick was about 12 to 14, Whitney brought him into her home and raised him like her son, because he was allegedly an orphan. She never officially adopted him. And again, I don't know how this whole thing even came about. But Nick was about 12 to 14. Bobby Christina would have been like 8 to 10 at the time. After Whitney's death, it came out that Nick and Bobby were now dating, which did not go over well in the press, especially since prior to that, Bobby had always referred to Nick as her big brother. Oh. The couple even had their own reality show called The Houstons on Our Own, which premiered in October 2012. And I'll say it, the series was announced less than three months after Whitney's death, which feels incredibly gross to me. It feels like someone heard about her death and immediately thought, how can we profit off of this? The show only lasted 14 episodes. Nick and Bobby announced their engagement in July 2013, and on January 9th, 2014, they announced that they had gotten married. Turns out, that was a lie. Then on January 31st, 2015, Bobby Christina was found unconscious in a bathtub in her home in Georgia. She was still breathing when she was found, so doctors placed Bobby in a medically induced coma. Unfortunately, six months later, Bobby died in hospice on July 26th. Mm. She was just 22 years old. Oof. The medical examiner found cannabis and alcohol in Bobby's system, as well as prescription medication for anxiety and depression. Her cause of death was listed as, quote, immersion associated with drug intoxication. Mm. Bobby Brown believes his breakup with Whitney is what caused their daughter's downward spiral. He said, quote, Whitney and I were not on the best terms at this point in our relationship because I felt she was trying to keep my daughter away from me and poison her mind against me. But I still cared for her deeply. I could never have foreseen this happening. I was in shock. 
which just kind of sounds like Bobby's blaming Whitney. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, The administrator for Bobby's estate believed that Nick Gordon was responsible for Bobby's death, so they filed a wrongful death suit alleging that Nick injected Bobby with a toxic mixture and placed her unconscious in the bathtub. The suit was first filed in June, but was amended in August after Bobby's death. It accuses Nick of, quote, assault, battery, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and transferring $11,000 from her account into his own without authorization. And that Bobby, quote, died following following a particularly violent altercation with Nick that left her battered, bruised, with a tooth knocked out. Oh, God. Nick, of course, denies everything. Although he did admit to having a fight with Bobby on the day she was found unconscious and that he changed his clothes after the fight, he did not state why he needed to change, but he also admitted to going out partying after Bobby was found, which is horrifying. Yeah. Especially when this is the woman that he supposedly wanted to marry. (sighs) He was found liable and legally responsible for Bobby Christina's death in the civil case, but no criminal charges were ever filed against him. Nick failed to appear at two hearings for the case, so Bobby's estate won by default. In 2016, he was ordered to pay $36 million to Bobby's estate. In March 2015, Nick appeared on Dr. Phil and was a mess. He was inconsolably crying, and he even threatened suicide. And because this story just continues to be tragic, Nick died on January 1st, 2020, in Florida, at the age of 30. According to the autopsy report, Nick died from a heroin overdose. Other substances found in his system included caffeine, morphine, and naloxone, which is a drug that reverses opioid overdoses. Oh, boy. On November 18th, 2020, Bobby Brown's second oldest son, Bobby Brown Jr., was found unresponsive in his California home. Paramedics were called, but they pronounced him dead at the scene. He was just 28 years old. An autopsy report revealed that he died from a combined effects of alcohol, cocaine, and fentanyl. The toll that drugs took on this entire family is so incredibly devastating. And I am in no way saying that Whitney's drug use in particular was justified. But I understand the pressure that she was under. She was told early in her career that people were counting on her, so she did tours even when she wasn't physically or mentally strong enough to do so. And talk about pressure, the Queen of Soul Aretha Franklin once told Whitney, quote, I'm passing the baton on to you, which is bound to put a massive weight on anyone's shoulders. And Whitney never set out to be famous. She just wanted to be a wife and a mother and just live a life full of love. She was thrust into the spotlight and completely unsure of how to handle it. I'm just so saddened for this family that Whitney's problems started early, and no matter how many times she tried, she just couldn't seem to kick them for good. Allegedly, Whitney called a doctor in the early 2000s, asked him to come see her. The doctor said he doesn't make those kind of visits, but he would send a car so she could come see him. Sadly, she never followed through with it. The doctor told Robin Crawford later he, to this day, regrets and feels he should have just made the, made the drive. 
Uh, So on one hand, I'm sad for everyone in this situation, but on the other hand, I'm completely enraged. Whitney was surrounded by so many people, and yet most seemed to just push her to tour so they could benefit from Whitney's career, which feels very similar to our Britney Spears episode, which was beautifully researched by our very own Laura Nash. And again, I know Whitney was an adult who made her own decisions, but even adults need help sometimes. And I know her mother, Sissy, tried to get Whitney into rehab a few times, but it seems like for the most part, she washed her hands of the situation, saying that it was Whitney's fault. Not only did Sissy openly suggest that there's no way she could be responsible, because if anything, she was too good of a mother, she also said that when it came to drugs, she didn't blame Bobby Brown or even the music industry. Sissy said, quote, yes, it can be tough and sometimes an ugly business. And yes, she had a hard time keeping up with the demands of promoting, performing, traveling, and everything else. But Nippy was a grown woman, and she had always been taught to think for herself. And I agree, for the majority of her drug use, Whitney was an adult who was responsible for her own actions. But I don't agree that the music industry wasn't also kind of at fault. Whitney would go to parties and there would be bowls of cocaine, which can't be great for someone who already has a problem. It just seemed like anyone who tried to help, specifically her best friend Robin, her assistant Sylvia, and her bodyguard David, were all immediately ousted by Whitney's family. Robin was pushed out after years of no one listening to her. Sylvia told John and Sissy about the drugs, and Whitney told her, quote, They said, I can't trust you. Sylvia was then demoted from Whitney's assistant to a studio cleaner. Oof. The family wouldn't even let Sylvia attend Whitney's last tour. And David submitted reports to Whitney's family, warning them of her drug use, and he was subsequently let go. Robin even told Sissy about it back in the early 80s, and she did nothing. It's like our Amy Winehouse episode, which was also beautifully researched by Lauren, where a lot of people knew there was a problem and no one did enough about it. So I'm not saying that these people are completely to blame, but to me, they are definitely culpable. They told Whitney that she had to tour or she'd be out on the street. But why would they? Why wouldn't they? They needed to say they needed to say and do whatever it took to keep the money coming in again. I remind you of how many people were using Whitney's company to pay their bills or even buy them houses. Even her own parents used that company for gas, among other things. Nothing makes me as angry as people using other people and taking advantage of their good nature. Did Whitney have her demons? She did. Did she get herself into a place that she couldn't get out of? Yes. But no one did enough to help her. And most of them just turned a blind eye while the problem raged on for years. And in 1990, Robin said of Whitney, quote, she was 27 years old and already she was tired. So they can't say they didn't see her struggling because it was obvious and most of them did nothing. But to end this in a less rage-filled place, here are a few things about Whitney that are relevant to our show. One, she was friends with Deborah Cox. Oh, shout out to Deborah and shout out to the overly confident teenage me who truly believed I was hitting those riffs. I was, I was, I was 
<laughs> Most definitely not. Uh, what can I say? I tried. Uh, number two, Whitney's favorite cereal was Fruity Pebbles. I know. Hey! I know. Love it so much. And lastly, Whitney was offered the role of Grace Hitchens on the TV series Glee, but she turned it down. Singer Eve was cast in her place, and you can't mention Glee on this show without bringing up our episode on the Glee curse. You should check it out. It's a it's romp. a romp. Whitney was described as giving, loving, quick to smile, and always the sweetest, most loving person in the room. She had a tender heart, and her mother said that Whitney always had a soft spot for the underdog, so much so that in her youth, she had to repeatedly be told to stop giving her stuff away to other kids. She was described as a ball of fire, who was the most loving mother and just a joy to be around. During her lifetime, Whitney did an incredible amount of charity work. She donated both her money and her time to causes like the Red Cross, the NAACP, the Barbara Davis Center for Childhood Diabetes. In 1989, she created the Whitney Houston Foundation for Children with a focus on children who were without housing or had cancer or HIV. All the money that came into the foundation went towards the children who needed it, whereas the salaries for those who worked at the foundation came right from Whitney's pocket. The foundation organized a youth leadership program in Washington and created suicide hotlines and 4-H clubs. And if her beautiful heart wasn't enough, Whitney also had a beautiful gift. To this day, Whitney is the only artist to have seven consecutive number one singles on the Billboard Hot 100. She was aptly named The Voice and while some may come close, I don't think we'll ever see another like her in our lifetimes. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I have calmed down considerably. <laughs> <laughs> your tone has, has softened. It's nice. Yeah. Uh, but you were well within your right, my goodness. Oh, yeah. wow. Get the blankets. We've got another one to add to the list. My God, another woman. Society has failed. Yeah. Um, but we'll get into that after we take one more break. So grab another drink, hit the loo, and we'll be right back to discuss our thoughts and feelings about Whitney Houston on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Oh, Whitney Houston. I'd like to wrap you in a blanket. You're welcome in. Yes. You're welcome into one. My goodness. Uh, I have a... Uh, okay, I'm going to go back to the beginning of my notes. Uh, first of all, I just wrote down, 
Ask her to do the Shaka Khan thing again. <laughs> honest i i wrote it like i did not write it with the intention that i was going to do that mm -hmm. but it was bigger than me in that moment <laughs> <Shaka -kan! laughs> i do it no justice uh, on the again, contrary so many you quotes. do it all the justice that was <laughs> phenomenal um playground programs Never heard of those before, but whoever this was that made you feel bad can ride the toe of my boot. Um, <laughs> this is where we're at. Yeah. I Then I just wrote down, saving all my love for you. Just because I wanted to sing it. Of course. Um, <laughs> I kind of hope by the end of this, you're going to have sung through all of her hits, to be honest. Listen, it might happen. I um, hope so. And then I just wrote, Bobby, Gross. Ugh, the worst. <laughs> yeah. The comment, yeah. I had sex with any woman in my vicinity, mm. it, just go go take a nap. Yep. Um, yep. Okay, here we go. First of all, he talked about his bucket list, and I, I just wrote, come on, Bobby, it's a fuck it list. Get it right. It was a he was, missed opportunity. He was specifically talking about having intercourse. Oh, yeah. Hooking missed up. opportunity. Yeah. Now, okay, a few things. Yeah. One of the first times... And believe me, her as a child, of course, I was like, get her the blankets, like all of the above, the bullying, it's heartbreaking. But the moment that things really turned for me was when she felt she had to offer to him, before we get married, go and party and get it all out of your system. And that she understood that that meant he was going to go on a four-week bachelor party around the world. To me... I want to preface this, of course, by saying if both parties are completely on board and it's consenting and you you are in some sort of polyamorous relationship, that's your business. Sure. Uh, I, I can't believe I was going to say that's your prerogative. I'm so sorry. But it was right you. there. But I don't know whether I feel like that was the case with her. And this is a pure speculation. But I feel like... Because, you know, he went on later to say, like, oh, she was cheating so much, and there's not really any evidence of that. Mm. It just mm -hmm. feels to me she was older. They were in their 20s. They were children. But she was older. You know, he was this notorious bad boy. Like, I feel like she probably felt like she had to do that in order for him to be with her, right? That it was like, I have to let him go do this thing yeah. for four weeks. And... It just breaks my heart because I just don't think that anyone needs to do anything no. where they have to diminish themselves or accept behavior that they they probably know deep down that they don't deserve. And the only reason why I really do think I'm right about it was I don't know that most women would be okay with their fiancé cheating on them and getting their ex-wife or ex-girlfriend pregnant. I can't believe that she was like, no problem. It was in your month of crazy. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I just don't. It, nope. it, to me, I'm just like, that was when I was just like, oh, get the blankets. Mm. Because, again, she's the most, at this point, she has this phenomenal huge career. She's got this yep. amazing voice. She's got all of these things going for her. And, again, feels that that's kind of what she has to do in order to keep him. 
And that just makes my blood boil, but also it makes me very sad for her. Um, did you know Kevin Costner was an ex-baseball player? Oh. I don't and you'll love this. That. I also say it, and now I'm second-guessing it. Maybe I'm thinking of Dennis Quaid? Oh, boy. I should have fact-checked this on the break. Uh, which brings me to my next note. Factoids. <laughs> you just couldn't be cuter. Um, okay. <laughs> Then you talked about the, the Bodyguard soundtrack, which I, anybody who is in our kind of age demographic deeply remembers. And yeah. then I wrote down, I had that tape. And then I just wrote down, John Sakata. Thank God. Because <laughs> I was thinking it. I was thinking it. Yeah. Quick side note. Um, <laughs> our childhood side note. <laughs> we were... I was in your bedroom and there was a, we were up late, way too late. It was like 2 a.m. or something. And there was a late night infomercial for none other than a uh, very talented singer, John Sakata. And Christy mm -hmm. poked a little fun at the commercial. <laughs> to which I responded, I have his tape. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love John Sakata. Yeah. Uh, and that was a moment that we have referenced for our entire lives ever since. Of course. I have a question about this kidnapping plot with the preacher crew. <laughs> uh-huh. Whitney had to pay 400K to get him back. Yeah. Do we believe that or do we no. believe that he was in on it to get that money? Oh, I could absolutely see that. Because I guess my bigger question is, and you may not know the answer to this, but like, how did that go down? Like, was he kidnapped and then like poorly treated like how did she find out I, I have no idea i hope he was poorly treated <laughs> but I, I know i just also feel like what are the odds i i just don't see it happening yeah i don't I know i could see it's it just, just being a way for him to get money it feels that way, doesn't it? And 400K feels like a large enough amount that he could have people help him out to sell it and they'd split it. Yep. Right? Oh, boy. Uh, then I wrote down for the first time, Amy Winehouse, I'm seeing the parallels. There's a lot with, you know, her family, the bodyguard giving that medical report to the family, them ignoring it. Yeah. That happened again and again with Amy Winehouse. Um, if you haven't yeah. listened to that episode, check it out. Not a romp. No. What a great episode of the show. <laughs> um, and that also just brought up to me, too, like, this is, like, such a common thread. Like, we've done so many of these kind of Blanket Gals episodes now, and the common thread is always just, again, like, no one in their lives stepping up. No one in their lives paying attention. No one in their lives wanting to potentially, quote, derail the money train. Like, it really... It breaks my heart to such a level because every one of those women was so amazing and vibrant Ugh. and talented in whatever their own right was. Um, it's And it also just makes my blood boil. It just sucks so hard that it's like no one stepped up enough, you know? Yeah. Um, him claiming he had 50 million in the bank when they married, I don't know, because then that was followed up by him saying like, the idea that I was a gold digger is emasculating. And I'm like, that's it right there. That's it right there. Your entire relationship with her was emasculating to you in your own mind because mm -hmm. she was as successful as you, albeit more successful than you. Yes. He couldn't handle it. Nope. Period. Full stop. Full stop. 
And the, like the the emotional abuse that she admitted to, these physical altercations, all of it, it's just uh, hashtag justice for Whitney. I mean, it's just yes. it's such a tragedy. Tragedy. And that's, again, a common thread in every one of those episodes we've done is that there's inevitably a man who feels intimidated by the woman's success Ugh. in whatever way. Mm-hmm. And then that man's behavior usually is outright abusive. But abusive in some way. Now, in Brittany's yeah. case, I would say that that would be her father. Um, yeah. In most of the other cases, it's romantic partners. Sure. Um, you know, it's even Marilyn with the, what's his name? The writer. Oh, Gross. Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller. Yeah. Used her. Outwardly oh. used her. Yeah. Awful. Awful. Um, you know, then my next note was Shades of Brittany forcing the tours. This is another thing. Amy Winehouse, too, forced those tours. And look at yeah. in, in three for three. Didn't turn out too well, did it? Three oh. for three. Thank, I mean, thank God Brittany is alive. That's what I mean. And oh, I said that yeah. at the time, and I, I stand by it now. Um, her life was, was stolen from her, and it is a, a yes. massive tragedy. But thank God. Thank God she's still here. Because if we've learned anything from these other episodes, it is actually a miracle that she's still here. Oh, true. God, yeah. And if they hadn't been keeping her on the conservatorship so under lock and key about what she was and wasn't allowed to ingest, which is disgusting, by the way, that, you know, she posted recently she had her first sip of champagne. She's a 40-year-old <sighs> woman. Um, You know, un- unfortunately, that level of this abuse is the, I think, the only reason why she is still here because it's, and and that's, mm-hmm. again, awful. The next thing that came up for me, you mentioned her mom, Sissy, didn't blame Bobby. Didn't blame Bobby. And then I thought of another one of my ladies, and that is China. And that made me think of China's mother saying, uh, I've made peace with Triple H, to which I said, well, guess what? I haven't and I never will. So I will I will hold that space for China. Uh, that man destroyed her. Yes. Uh, again, I think the sentiment, again, no one did enough to help her. I'm going to say something. And it's gonna be a controversial statement, but I I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. I don't want to blame Robin. I don't. But I do feel that she did fail her in some ways. And I understand, I understand that it's nobody's job to, quote, save anybody else. I get that. Sure. And I understand also that she needed to remove herself from the situation because it had become so volatile with Bobby. I agree. Yes, Robin did need to look out for herself a hundred percent. Yes. But I just feel like again and again, the kind of thing that would come up is that it's like, well, Robin's been saying this from the beginning. Robin's been saying this. Robin's been saying this. And it's like, cool. At, at what point? I guess it's, this is the question that I it brings up for me, and it's in regards to basically all of these these women's stories that we've done over the course of a year and a bit on this show. At what point is it too much? Like, at what point? Like, can we make some sort of checklist or have? And I'm not being facetious. Like, is there some sort of standard we can set where we can just, as a as a group, decide that it's like, well, if you get three out of five of these, it's time to intervene in whatever way necessary. Do you know what I mean? Because I also understand that when you're in it and it's like the frog in the boiling water, you know what I mean? I get that over time, it slowly kind of, it slowly raises and people around maybe don't notice it as much. But I just wish 
wish that there could have been something else that was done. And I know you could say, well, what, Lauren? What could have helped her? She was put into rehab. She did go through these things. I understand that I'm also answering my own question by saying I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that. But it just feels to me, again, like, at what point do you just keep yelling? Until until yes. something changes, you know? Oh, and again, no disrespect to Robin. I just feel again that when it comes up again and again, because they were so inseparable, so very close for their entire lives, and she had been saying it for most of their adult lives, you know? Yes. It just, again, I'm not blaming her. I'm just saying I, I do feel like I wish she had pushed harder. But again, I also understand not her job. I get it. Um. Who do you love? David Deborah Cox. What uh what a tune. Yes. What a tune. Um you know, and I think overall those were those were most of my my thoughts so tragic about Bobby Christina too. Oh, so tragic. And and Bobby Bobby Brown uh, senior the father trying to make it about Whitney again. It's like just enough. We all know. We all know what you're doing. We see you. We know what you're doing. Stop it. Um it's miraculous to me that no criminal charges were filed against Nick Gordon in that case. But now learning that he's passed, I guess the whole point is, is that there's nothing that could be done now anyway, because he's no longer with us. Um, but if, if he was responsible for her death and this was someone that we knew grew up in the same house for a, a certain period of time with Bobby Christina. Yeah. Taken in by Whitney, all of the above. If he then did go on to essentially you know, get engaged to her and then kill her. I'll say it again. Get the blankets, Bobby Christina too. Like the, the, this is just like, it's just so gutting to me that this poor girl loses her mother, has this very questionable father figure, <sighs> turns to the other person that was in the house, which does make sense. If I put my psychologist hat on for a second, it may have felt to Bobby Christina like this Nick Gordon person was the only, like she wanted to keep that one family member she still had close. So then it turned into this romantic slash engagement, whatever. Like psychology-wise, I'm saying this could be subconscious. I get it. But then if that person then failed her, I just, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. And it is also interesting, again, that then Bobby's other uh, other child, Bobby Bobby Jr., also died. It just feels like, I don't want to call this a curse because I think that that kind of undermines what, what's really happening here. Um, and I don't know, I don't believe that it was a curse in this, this situation. But it just feels like what a unfortunate string of, of I also don't know if I can call it luck because it, it feels like, you know, to your point, when do, what's what qualifies as enough trauma? Ugh. You know, like it's like the the idea that it suggesting that Whitney like hadn't gone through that much. It's like, well, how do we begin to know what the scale is for every single different person? And when we see that so many people in these family lines are struggling with substances, it makes me feel more and more like, you know, it's a perfect storm. And yeah. what's left is, so much loss, which is just so, so heartbreaking. Um, and that fucking raffles, man. Oh my God. I can't with raffles. I felt, I felt bad for a second because I made fun of his name so hard when you first said it. 
And then you told me that he took her photo of her in her casket and sold it for 500K to the National Enquirer. And I just now feel like I wish I'd gone harder against his name. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. There's just... I. Once I learned he existed, I was like, oh, no, I'm going to have to talk about him. I can't talk about this without bringing him up. I don't want to bring him up, but I feel like I have to. Um, yep. I just, oh, God. So many people in this make me angry. Um, but Nick Gordon, the idea yeah. that he potentially killed Bobby Christina. For me, it's the fact that she was found the same way her mother was found. Their uh, cause of death was almost exactly the same. It's just like, was he like, you know what? I have to wait till she's 30 to get that whole Whitney amount. What's going to make people care more if she dies or if she dies exactly like her mother? That'll make this huge. That'll make this... You know, something that people pay attention to. Did he did he do it thinking that that was going to somehow, that it would pay off for him in some way? It is also possible it was just a tragic accident that happened. Yep. The amount of tragedies just, I can't. It's just also hearing a mother be like, well, I did too good of a job. Oh, if yeah, anything else, I come did on. too good of a job. And then turns around and is like, I just, she didn't show me she loved me enough. I showed her, she just didn't show me enough. It was, I can't, like, the the different books that I read caused so many emotions, because I read one written by Whitney's mother, um, and uh, I have a lot of feelings on that, but not the point. And then I read one written by Robin. And right. then I, I read one written by Bobby, and that was tough. That was tough to get through because he had written one that was like, this is my life story. And then after Whitney died, he wrote this other one that was like, here's the real story. And it was all this like, Whitney cheated on me, all of this. And it's like, all of course you wait till she has died so she can't defend herself or say that is not true or whatever. It's just... Gross. And you'd already put out one. You didn't need to put this one out. I just, I, I, yeah. oh, I wish I hadn't come across it. He's too much. I'm just, again, I'm so angry at so many people in this. I, I get it. I just, I can't, you know? Well, you can though, because you did an amazing episode. Uh, no, as I'm always, really brought it. I liked your passion. I liked your uh, vitriol for Bobby Brown. He, uh, he, he deserves it. Yeah. He deserves it. Oh, that's staying with me um, for life. Listen. Same. Uh, so on behalf of myself and everyone else, once again, Christy Oxborough, killing the game, mm. as always. Exceptional work, compelling, riveting, well-researched, and of course, passionate. You are too kind. I speak the truth. Uh, and thank you, dear listeners, for listening to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Um, if you haven't already, give us a follow on social media, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, at True Crime and Cocktails, Twitter, at Not Detectives. 
Uh, and of course, if you'd like a little bit more, go over to Patreon, patreon.com slash cocktails. It's a subscription-based service. We offer bonus episodes where often we share pieces that we have cut for time on this main podcast. Um, over there in our bonus episodes, there's live Q&As, there's the patrons poll I mentioned earlier. It's a lot of fun, so check that out if you like. And the only place to find official True Crime and Cocktails merch is truecrewmerch.com. Uh, so check that out as well. Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? I kind of assumed you'd want to because it's kind of like this was your brainchild. That's correct. Yeah. It was. Uh, now, full disclosure, next week we are taking the week off. We have some fun things going on, some fun things brewing that we can't share yet. And also, um, we've decided any months with five weeks, we're taking one of those weeks off. Four yeah. four episodes a month is our commitment, um, and that's just for our own uh, mental health. So yeah. uh, enjoy any of our old catalog next week because there's over 70 episodes to choose yeah. from. And mm -hmm. uh, look for us back Tuesday, March 22nd with an episode that I'm researching about one of the UK's most prolific serial killers, Johanna Dennehy. Very excited about that. Also, some people call her Joanne. Some people call her Joanna. It feels, what I found is that she was born with the name Joanna, but I just want to say it now before people question me. Sure. She went by both. She went by both. Oh, I I trust you to the ends of the earth. Wow. Bless you. Bless you. Anyway, I am jazzed. I'm knee deep in research. And let me tell you, this serial killer special is going to give. Oh, I can't wait. Well, same. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, silent Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> <laughs>